0: with our program. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to everyone. <clears throat> Good afternoon, Advocate. Is there anything that we need to know before we start with the session?
1: Not at this stage, uh, Deputy Chair. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think then we will continue.
0: And our next session, let me first of all welcome all of you back. I think this morning it was quite an interesting session. And it was quite a lively session. We want to express appreciation to the chairperson of the NCOP as well as the presenters. They were all in attendance and that was, that was quite a record because yesterday we didn't kick off on a very good footing. So we want to welcome everyone back, all the, the members as well as the special delegates as well as our presenters and our guests. You are more than welcome. And we will start the second session, the session four for today, the second session, session four of our program. And we want to welcome our presenters on the topic Public Finance Management Act and the role of Parliament in the oversight of the budget. Our esteemed presenters will be Professor Michelle Chiyoyo from the School of Public Management and Administration of the University of Pretoria, as well as our very recently appointed Bogoto, uh, as the Auditor General, Mr. Kani Maluleke, and uh, as well as Mr. Dondom Mohajane, the Director General of the National Treasury. The three of them is esteemed uh, speakers and also esteemed scholars, and particularly in the areas of public management administration, as well as finances, as well as particularly public finances. So for the three of them, according to the time allocation, each one of them will get 20 minutes to do a presentation. Each one of them will get 20 minutes. And we will immediately give over to Professor
2: Michelle Chiyoyo. Professor, over to you for your presentation. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Madam Deputy Chair. And um, thanks to you all your
3: to all the honorable members attending this workshop, and uh, our newly appointed uh, Auditor General and um, the DG of uh, National Treasury, and uh, to all the participants, presenters and uh, organizers of uh, this session. I am honored and privileged to share a bit uh, on the topic. Uh, the Public Finance Management Act and the role of Parliament in uh, the oversight uh, role um, of the in the oversight of the budget. As a way of introduction, uh, we can agree that this topic is not new. Um, the PFMA was adopted uh, in 1999, and since then many years have passed, and the PFMA came to support the spirit of our constitution the constitution of 1996 and there are many other provisions in terms of frameworks mechanisms that support the management of public finance in the country and that uh, goes to say that south africa has numerous pieces of legislation uh, guiding the management of public finance and the pfma is there to support the spirit of the constitution as it talks to the issues of accountability and also the oversight as uh, we're talking about it today. But b- beside all the provisions and the mechanisms and frameworks that we do have, reports of various stakeholders still reveal that um, the parliament oversight role does not take place as it should be. Year after year, the Auditor General reports reveal that there is a persistence of poor accountability in the management of public finance. And that raises uh, a few questions. Why is there an absence of accountability despite the availability of an oversight model for parliament? What role should our parliament play in ensuring effective oversight? Because when you look, as I said, When you look at the report, um, you take Salga's report, Auditor General, and many other stakeholders, they are all negative. Maybe few municipalities or departments get a clean audit, but broadly, many departments and municipalities are still struggling in terms of accounting for the use of public uh, uh, money or taxpayers' money. And now, what role should our parliament play in ensuring uh, that um, oversight role? it has as at our Constitution. Uh, The key question I would like to ask, and this will relate to some of the recommendations that I will give at the end of my presentation, is to know, do our parliamentary, uh, or let's say the members of parliamentary committee, especially the finance one, empowered with the necessary financial literacy? And this is a question I'm not posing it to the Ruling party, I know the financial um, uh, finance portfolio committees um, composed of members of various parties. Do political parties train their delegated members to these committees in terms of financial literacy? That is a question. Do we empower them enough so that they can understand the issues relating to uh, the financial management? so that they can roll out their oversight role effectively as it is expected. In terms of our constitution provisions, uh, section 55 enables the National Assembly to maintain oversight role over all organs of state. And it's section 92 enables parliament to hold the cabinet accountable. Whereas section 216 envisages uniform treasury norms and standard for all spheres of government. And this means that the constitution promotes the objectives of good financial management in order to maximize delivery through the efficient and effective use of uh, limited resources. It prescribes the executive uh, legislative authorities relations on how it should um, uh, take place. This means that the parliament Parliament's roles in the oversight uh, of the budget is the backbone of our democracy. What about the Public Financial Management Act? As I said, it, it was uh, established since 1999 uh, and amended uh, a bit uh, late on. And as we had yesterday and even this morning, the PFMA brought a revolution to what was happening under the Exchequer Act. The PFMA aims to modernize the system of financial management. It enables public sector management to manage, uh, to man- public sector management to manage and to be more accountable. And it ensures a timely provision of quality information. It also eliminates waste and corruption in the use of uh, public assets. Its purpose is to regulate financial ma- uh, management and ensure that all revenues, expenditures, assets, liabilities are managed efficiently and effectively. It stipulates the responsibility of persons entrusted with financial management. And lastly, it provides for other matters relating to uh, financial management in South Africa. Key element of our PFMA, I can zoom into chapter three. And then Chapter Four, and Chapter Three talks uh, to provincial treasury and provincial revenue funds. Uh, why am I bringing all um, the, these two chapters? Is to demonstrate the expect uh, expect um, uh, competencies or skills that are needed from our members of Parliament and particularly those sitting in the um, the oversight committee to understand some of these key uh, aspects. When we look at provincial revenue funds, one speaks of the control of provincial revenue funds and the deposit into provisional revenue funds, withdrawal of exclusion, all these are very specific and complicated terminologies or concepts used in terms of financial management. And a person who doesn't, have what you call financial literacy, will find it difficult to understand some of these concepts and um, and uh, how it should be applied in real life and how one has to go about monitoring or evaluating how the executive uh, authority have managed to follow up the prescript of the constitution and uh, the PFMA. In terms of chapter four, we look at um, the national and provincial budget. The topic of this presentation was more to look at the PFMA and the oversight role of uh, parliament in the budget. And now national and provincial budget have uh, categories and components that are also essential. One looks at uh, annual appropriations uh, national annual budget, multi-year budget, expenditure before annual budget uh, is passed, National adjustment and many other components that are specific and complex for a person who would not have a proper understanding of financial matters. Now, what is oversight? What is expected from um, the, the committee? Oversight involves the informal and formal, watchful, strategic, and uh, structured uh, scrutiny exercises by legislature in respect of the implementation of law, um, the application of the budget and the strict observance of statutes and the constitution. And then oversight is a function granted by the constitution to parliament to monitor and oversee government actions as I've alluded to some of the, the sections in my previous slides. So when exercising oversight, parliament focuses on the following areas implementation of laws application of budget strict ob- uh, observance of laws of parliament and the constitution and above all effective management of government department um, now the question is what has been happening since let's say ninety six when uh, we uh, re- um, we adopted the new constitution and what has been happening since ninety nine uh, w- uh, with the establishment of of the PFMA and reports, as I said it already, of various uh, stakeholders tell us the reality of what has been happening uh, on the ground. Year after year, uh, the Auditor General and many other stakeholders are giving negative um, picture of what is really happening in terms of um, uh, that role. Why is oversight important for a democracy like South Africa? You will all um, remember that our municipalities are the grassroots of uh, service delivery. They are responsible for the design and execution of service delivery project for our people. And service delivery has a direct impact on the living condition of our citizens. Therefore, oversight is critical to effect more legitimate local governance. And legislative oversight Over executive authority, use of public finance is one of the tenets of any democracy here in Africa or anywhere else in uh, in the world. So oversight is aimed at promoting and ensuring that uh, the executive branch of government uses taxpayers' money in an efficient, effective and economic manner. That's what uh, the PFMA will call promoting value uh, for money. And oversight is a key factor towards strengthening our democracy because um, the report of the oversight or how well the parliament does its role, it means that our people or the citizen or the taxpayers will be pleased on the way their money is being used. And by uh, overseeing the action of government, parliament is able to ensure that the service delivery takes place so that all citizens can live a better quality of uh, life. The contrast between accountability and oversight in section uh, 152.1A of the constitution, local governments should provide a democratic and accountable accountable government for local municipality. The councillors and municipal officials are subject to accountability and they require they are required to demonstrate a sense of responsibility when carrying out their functions. And why is this a point important? Because uh, in the oversight role, one should monitor and also evaluate uh, how well local municipalities or national departments are rolling out their responsibilities toward the social contract between the government and uh, the citizen. And Public servants should account for their decision and activities in public. And this is where public here will mean in uh, the National Assembly or the parliament as one might call it. And accountability can be broadly defined as a social relationship where an actor feels an obligation to explain and justify his uh, conduct uh, to some significant other. And in this case, it will be our parliament, um, which is a, a representation of the citizen of this country. Lack of accountability is a major factor that contributes to the financial and uh, administrative crisis in most of municipalities and uh, even national department and so, so on. What are some of the challenges that one uh, is faced with? I just named a um, few, highlighted few. I know the list is quite long. Um, coming uh, on the first point is the inadequate resourcing of, of oversight uh, structures. As you'll pick from my presentation since I started, it's the issue of uh, capacity. And many presenters this morning or this afternoon have also alluded to the issue of capacity. Inadequate resourcing um, of oversight um, Structures and in this case, do our committees well empowered to do their job as instructed in the constitution or in many other pieces of legislation. There is also a poor parliament committees and executive authorities relations. Uh, we've had in the past where um, one um, is feeling not entitled to account to the communities and that creates a tension and it also affects that role that the parliament is to play. Information asymmetry between government and the legislatures. One speaks one language and the other one uh, interprets or understand it otherwise. And it becomes difficult for the synchronization of uh, ideas or information um, so that we can deliver to our people as it is expected and poor understanding of the budget cycle. I will not go into the details of um, the cycle. As we know from the uh, preparation, approval, execution, and then control or evaluation, those are the specific stages that constitute um, the budget cycle. And for one to monitor or evaluate what an executive authority is doing, one must understand what is the budget and how is the budget drafted or prepared? Um, does it meet the requirement of the PFMA when we talk of the outcomes and the impact that will have on our citizens? As I've already said uh, in the previous slide, that we are there for service delivery or the public service is mandated to work toward ensuring a better living for our people. So every budget should be adopted or designed in a manner that it meets the need and expectation of the people. So a poor understanding of the budget cycle can also be a critical element that affects the oversight role of uh, the parliament committees. And lastly, uh, is different part of the accountability chain not well aligned? Uh, Here, we need to understand the typologies of accountability, the political one, the institutional one, and uh, all the other uh, types of accountability, we need somehow to align them so that we can talk, um, have a same sense of what is expected in terms of accountability, especially when we talk of uh, a public finance. What can be done to strengthen the role of parliament in terms of its um, oversight role? Effective parliamentary oversight is dependent on members of parliament acting in the best interest of the people of South Africa without fear, favor, or prejudice. And this calls me to uh, just, I like to uh, point in terms of recommendations. And as I've been saying, when I started, I'm looking more into the issue of capacity. We need to increase the capacity of community uh, committee members by improving their financial literacy through training. And members should be exposed to formal academic programs. Uh, here I'm not advocating for, uh, to, uh, for this because I'm from a, an academic background, but I believe and uh, with my few uh, years of, um, teaching public financial management and training public financial management, we see that most of the public, uh, representative, they, yes, if not scared, they don't, um, clearly understand uh, what, the, what are the key um, issues pertaining to financial management. So we can couple formal and informal uh, training where um, executive or members of uh, committees can attend academic programs, uh, or we can also offer them informal training in terms of workshops, like what is organized now or seminars, and then uh, conferences, and here beside the parliament exposing committee members to this, and I believe it will also be a duty of each political party to somehow know that those delegated uh, in the co- uh, committees relating to finance have at least an understanding of of uh, financial matters, and I think that will somehow alleviate the challenges that we we're facing in in this area. So uh, two point, formal um, uh, training, which can come in the form of academic programs and informal in terms of uh, workshops, seminars, and conferences. The parliament should somehow promote the following competencies. Um, The understanding of the constitution, because um, as in my presentation, I alluded a little bit to the provision of our constitution linking it to the PFMA and then talking to a bit of the budget um, cycle. So it only takes one with a financial literacy to uh, uh, join the dots between the constitution, the PFMA, the budget, and then the role um, uh, parliament should be playing. So we need somehow to go back again to the drawing board and then train our public servants, particularly those sitting in committees to have an understanding of the constitution, and then understanding of the the statutes and laws that guide public finance in the country. The budget analysis, as I said, uh, when I was talking about the budget cycle, how do we analyze the preparation and the planning phase, the approval phase, the execution, and then the evaluation phase? So one needs to be uh, trained on um, uh, doing that. And uh, also, one should also be exposed to policy analysis and engagement. And this is where the training comes, handy in helping our representative to have an understanding of what policy analysis is all about. And a budget being a policy, one must be able to check at the policy, especially when the budget review is done. How do we go and engage ministers or representatives of um, various um, provinces on the budget, the adopted budget or the rolling out or the implementation of their budget. And then we need also our committee members to be exposed to standard operating procedures, not only print them or post them, but they need to know what all these standards are all about and how uh, uh, executive authorities need to follow them in the implementation of the budget. And finally, uh, with my second recommendation, was more to promote high ethics and professional standards in, uh, in these committees. And I think this is uh, sustained by the training, as I alluded to above. And we need to enforce uh, the code of conduct for our members. They need to know why they are there, um, what they are there for and then they should somehow unpack or roll out this uh, oversight role, it is only then that we'll be able to resolve some of the challenges that we've been uh, facing. Because as uh, Madam Auditor General is here with us, when we go uh, look at some of the reports, it has always been negative. And why year after year we are facing this challenge? So uh, this is a little bit I wanted to, to bring up. And as I said, um, this not being a new topic, I wanted just to bring up some some of the key issues that I thought are important and that I pick up on my training when we train um, public servant on public finance. Um, and I thought um, um, I could share this with you. Thank you, Madam Deputy Chair, and uh, thank you to um, uh, the listeners. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Prof. Chiyoyo. We will continue with the presentation and we will now call on Mr. Kani Maluleke, our Auditor General of South Africa, to continue with her input. Madam
3: Chair, your your mic is muted. We can't hear you.
0: Are you sure that you can't hear me? Am I audible? Yes, I can hear you now. Yes, you are. So something happened, I'm sorry, Prof, something should have happened. Once again, let me repeat and call on Ms. Sakani Maluleke, our esteemed Auditor General, to continue with her presentation. Like I've said, it's 20 minutes, but we are allowing a little bit of time over so that you can just conclude, but we must also take into account that we we have been here for a long time. Over to
2: you, uh, A.G.,
4: Thank you very much, um, Madam Deputy Chair, and uh, a warm greeting to you, to the Chair as well as to the House Chair, a warm greeting to the members of the NCOP, the National Assembly, as well as the MPLs that are here, councillors, my fellow panellists, as well as the distinguished guests. Um, Honourable Deputy Chair, I have heard your call for us to try and preserve time, and I'm keen to do that. Uh, for I would also want to ensure that we have ample opportunity to engage on the, on the um, topic with, with the members of, of this court. Um, Madam Deputy Chair, the PFMA provides the critical framework for effective and efficient financial and performance management in the public sector. Financial statements as well as performance reports are the basis for effective monitoring and for effective oversight on the expenditures of the allocated budgets. In order to be effective in their role, oversight structures must insist on quality financial statements, as well as quality performance reports, which have been thoroughly reviewed and assured by the key assurance providers. Providing credible reports on their institutions is the key responsibility of accounting officers and accounting authorities. Uh, and they need to execute on this duty being supported by their senior managers, including CFOs, by the internal audit function as well as the audit committee. And this is so that they need to establish processes, internal controls and disciplines which help them to create uh, credible information, reliable information, and to do so on a regular basis. Through our audit work, we focus on three areas, the credibility of financial information, the um, usefulness and reliability of performance reports, and we also look at compliance. In our audits, we look at all three areas and we report on that, but we also include an assessment of the internal controls within that environment. And I just want to zone in on this particular aspect, Um, given the recent outcomes for the financial year ended March 2020 for provincial and national government. In this report that we tabled uh, just a few short weeks ago, we reported that 74% of auditees had published credible financial statements. And I know that Propture says that we often give very bad news. I think 74% of auditees publishing credible financial information is relatively good news. However, if you drill down, you'll appreciate that only 49% of auditees were able to submit quality financial statements at the beginning of the audit process meaning then that 25% of auditees use the audit process to correct misstatements in their financial statements. And there's a similar story on performance reports. And I share this information because it highlights that there is still a prevalence of weak disciplines and weak controls in terms of how the preparation of credible in-year reports is done. Essentially, it means that progress on the committed programs and expenditures expenditures against those allocated budgets, that information, that progress is not being effectively monitored and tracked. And this is so even amongst departments and entities that receive unqualified audit opinions. So I am saying that we've got to look beyond the unqualified audit opinion and examine the nature of the controls and the disciplines that underpin how budgets are being allocated, how they're being spent and how programs that are attached to those budgets are actually panning out during the year and right through to the end of the year. And the situation is much worse um, where auditees have not even received an unqualified audit opinion. So the 26% of auditees that had either qualified audit opinions on their financials, adverse or disclaimers they would have even worse controls in terms of monitoring performance against stipulated targets on on programs and monitoring the expenditure of budgets that are allocated to those programs. We had 21 auditees receiving adverse and disclaimer audit opinions in the year. Those are entities where their financial statements simply could not be relied upon for any assessment, certainly not in-year, and we found that at the end of the year. So it's difficult to see how performance becomes um, something that can be tracked um, and overseen by oversight over over the course of the year. Essentially it means that credible information that needs to be available for monitoring performance is not there, which limits the ability of oversight to conduct its work. It compromises the journey towards effective delivery and performance It compromises the journey towards accountability, transparency, and good governance, which are key aspirations for the public sector. And it also compromises the ability for us to build and maintain the integrity of key institutions. Now, the current fiscal pressures that are the order of the day highlight the urgency for all of us who work within the public finance management system to address all of these problems. Problems which make it difficult for government to deliver on programs in an efficient and cost effective manner. Our analysis, honorable members, is that the very best way to solve these problems is to attend to the key roles of accounting officer and to CFO. Let's make, let's make sure that the vacancies are filled with people who have the competencies and people who are long enough in their roles to actually perform effectively against their stipulated duties. That's really talking to the stability and the tenure of those key roles. So our recommendation would would cover, I'll highlight only six points, and I'll do so briefly. The first one is that last year, we issued a preventative controls guide, which was a joint project between us and the National Treasury. And it is a document that is targeted at accounting officers and oversight. It is a tool that allows accounting officers to track their journey around building the key controls that are important for them to prevent problems, to detect them and to act on them and to systematically build stable and performing institutions. It's also a tool that allows oversight to track that journey. In that tool, we've included key questions that oversight can to accounting officers as part of the accountability process, so that they can focus on the effectiveness of key controls that support the presentation of credible information to you, so that as oversight, you do have credible information that can form the basis for discussion on performance and the basis for improving performance, safeguarding resources, and also demonstrating the heightened levels of accountability and transparency. call on uh, oversight to insist on credible information, making sure that accounting officers can confirm that the information being presented to yourselves has been reviewed and that there's been assurance provided on it by internal audit and by audit committees. That's a question you can and should be posing to accounting officers before you spend time engaging either on a financial report or a performance report. We also recommend that Oversight consistently seeks assurance on the capacity and on the stability of people in key roles that are responsible for financial and performance management functions. And I'm not talking about individuals being stable, but rather whether that function is stable with people who are in their roles long enough to be effective in them. The next recommendation, Honourable Chair, Deputy Chair, would be that have audit committees represented in your engagement and have them confirm that the audit findings from internal audit or from external audit being auditor general are being addressed. Because that's going to deal with one of the matters that came up in your conversation earlier on today about audit action plans that remain undealt with year on year, where we end up as auditor general issuing repeat findings. For the journey of building stable Effective performing institutions of government. That journey can only happen if there is continuous improvement, continuous focus and attention to the things that have been pointed out as being wrong. So that on an ongoing basis, there is um, strength being built into the system. And the last recommendation we would we would put to yourselves is that you could then track through inquiry. Um, of the accounting officer, using our preventative controls guide, through that inquiry you can track whether appropriate or adequate consequences are being implemented when things have gone wrong. From an audit office point of view, we have these new powers and we are implementing those with the rigour and the commitment that you would expect from us. What is going to get us to win in the day around building and sustaining stronger and stronger institutions that can deliver in a cost-effective and efficient way, that journey's gotta be characterized by all of us who have some role to play driving these improvements, driving this level of inquiry and attention on critical matters on an ongoing basis. Those honorable deputy chair would be my comments. I've given you some sense of what we're finding, um, as a limitation to effective monitoring and oversight by by um, by the NCOP members and by legislatures generally, and I've also given you some recommendations on what can be done to improve. I look forward to the engagement. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Back to you, Honourable.
0: Thank you very much for efficient and effective recommendations. Or oh, other other people will still. Determined, particularly those that are closer to the to the real work, but I'm sure they will engage with your recommendations. Thank you very much. You left us a bit of time, so we will now uh, uh, call on Mr. Muhajani, the Director General of Treasury in South Africa, to continue with his presentation
5: Thank you as very the last much. panelist session. Thanks, our Deputy Chairperson and our members. Thank you very much for, and friends and colleagues for inviting the Treasury and in particular myself to make this input to, to, to this committee and to this workshop. Thank you very much. Um, yes, of course, we, we, we cannot uh, in, in an environment like this talk about the role and, 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 and the oversight role without going to the basics in terms of what the constitution is saying what the MFM is saying about some of the responsibilities that, that we have. Maybe let me start by just saying, what are the, what's the legal and constitutional framework that actually gives us the accountability and the role that, that we should be playing? If you look at section 55 five two of the constitution, it says the National Assembly must provide the mechanisms to ensure that all executive organs of state in the national sphere of government are accountable to it and to maintain oversight. Of the exercise of national executive um, authority including the implementation of legislation and any organ of state section 92 3b says requires that members of cabinet must provide parliament with full and regular reports concerning matters under their control let's uh, for now chair you know underline members of the cabinet must provide parliament with full and regular reports concerning, and I'll come back to that because I think it's important that we remember that it, it's underlying the members of cabinet and what do I mean uh, by that? With clear examples that I'll use later on. The PFMA says, section six of the PFMA says, that clearly the functions of the treasury, section six says the treasury must manage the budget process that we know, section 26, of the PFMA says parliament and each provincial legislation must appropriate money for each financial year for the requirements of the state and province respectively now again if you go on section 227.4 of the PFMA says that further that when the annual budget is introduced in the national assembly the accounting officer of each department must submit to parliament measurable objectives for each main division within the department's vote and the relevant treasury may coordinate these submissions and consolidate them in one document. Again, if you go to section 41D, 51D also of the PFMA, says that the accounting officer must submit within five months of the end. There are some obligations that the law gives us, accounting officers. Again, PFMA section 651 talks about the minister responsible for a department must table a budget, a t- a table and annual report in the relevant legislation within the one month. Chapter five of the treasury regulations, and I think this is also important is that we have to then facilitate the annual discussion of individual votes. Accounting officers must provide Parliament or the relevant legislation, the respective institution, medium term plan, and where applicable, with annual performance plan. Now, when you look at all of what the law says, and again, Honourable Karim earlier on was saying that we've got all the tools. Uh, Parliament has got all the tools that you can use. The legislative framework currently has given us all the tools that we need. One, to keep, or, you know, you know, uh, make us as accounting officers accountable. To the cabinet also including uh, members, uh, you know, of the provincial executive accountable in any way that they do. Now, the executive did. When then we translate
0: okay, someone
5: can
0: we request the members that are not on the platform please please mute your mics can we can we find out who is can you mute please 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 assist us here I'm sorry did you
5: for that but no problem thank you thank you it's a chairperson now the, the executive then has has then coordinated itself in a way that departments have been established in particular i'm zooming into the department of performance and planning and evaluation what are they then doing based on the plans that the law requires departments to do how those plans are consolidated and who then Plays an oversight role on those plans, including performance thereof, and including evaluation that's necessary. Then there's this, the Department DPME, which is mandated then to monitor the performance of departments, and provincial government departments and municipalities, and to carry out evaluations in partnership with other departments. There's that role, and that role then must also be, you know, be lifted out, and the role of the department must then be put on the side. So you've got two boxes that. I think uh, honorable deputy chairperson, we must remember as I'm going to conclude later on. One, there's a role of the cabinet that I said is important and what cabinet must do. The second important aspect in, in my presentation is then let's look at the role of GPME and what they should be doing because they've got certain responsibilities in terms of their mandate and what they are established for. Three, then you've got the national treasury. The national treasury obviously finds expression in the constitution, I mean 216 or Establishes the National Treasury. The PFMA gives us certain responsibilities. A few of them is to compile in public, uh, you know, report, publish reports on spending of each and every department. These reports are submitted to the spending, standing committee on appropriations on a quarterly basis. And subsequently, a presentation is also made summarizing the expenditure outcomes and spending issues for each quarter. We do that. The latest was yesterday, some of my colleagues. Went, went to the Standing Committee on Appropriations and presented spending patterns across uh, in, you know, na- national departments. And one expect that the same role is therefore given in provincial settings is given to provincial treasuries in terms of how and how they should then be accountable to call them provincial scorers for now. There's also section 32 of the PFMA which then uh, uh, you know dictates and say to us that within 30 days after the end of each month the National Treasury must publish in the National Government Gazette a statement of actual expenditure revenue and expenditure with regard to the National Revenue Fund which we've been religiously doing for, for almost 20 years and we, we, are not, we have not erred on that. The question then becomes what then do we do with that information? What does Parliament do? What does various political I mean, sorry, uh, oversight committees in Parliament do with the information that we've religiously been providing uh, and uh, including the uh, information that on a quarterly basis, we're expected to publish in terms of of, of section 32. Furthermore, section 32 of the PFMA states that it must specify the actual expenditure per vote, which we do, distinguishing between capital and current expenditure for that period and for the financial year uh, up to the end of the year, meaning, there are obviously projections in terms of how the departments and and entities prepare plan to spend the money, uh, you know, for the for the whole of the period. All of that is dictated in the regulations. Is dictated in terms of what the PFMa expect us to do. Now, insofar as accounting officers and the AG did mention accounting officers in the guideline that we we, we, we published jointly last year, accounting officers in law has section 38 to 43 of the PFMa stipulates the responsibilities of accounting officers and again making oneself familiar with fami- familiar with these uh, you know responsibilities is quite something that's critical and right uh, up front that we must make sure that we fully understand what and what they cannot do they are responsible accounting officers are responsible for ensuring effective and efficient and transparent finance management of their institutions they must then set up relevant systems such as internal audit and procurement Procurement for this purpose. Accounting officers must enforce budgetary control, ensuring that expenditure is in accordance with the vote of the department and the main divisions with the vote. Now, in terms of this section, um, you know, the, apart from other P- uh, treasuries, both provincial and national treasuries should do, and their role, articulated in, in law, they also have this responsibility to ensure that the spending is sufficient and effective. So again, it's something that we must remember as, as, as later on when I, I'm, I'm going to summarize in terms of how to then locate responsibility and actually how then we should be playing uh, or we expect or, or we recommend that accounting mean, um, oversight committees in parliament should play. Accounting officers must also enforce budgetary control, ensuring that expenditure is in accordance with the vote. It's not it's not necessarily a national treasury function insofar as a department is, is concerned. It is from an oversight point of view in terms of our overall uh, you know, responsibility, but accounting officers have to ensure that budgetary control measures are put in place in accordance with the vote. They must also keep full and proper records of the financial affairs of the department and prepare annual financial statements and submit these to the auditor general. They are doing that, they've been doing that, and I think, again, as an, you know, from an oversight point of view, we must remember 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 this. They must also prepare and submit cash flows to the treasuries, which should report on a monthly and quarterly basis, and are obliged to supply information as requested to treasury and the AG. Finally, the accounting officers must also oversee the effective management um, of the institutions of assets and liabilities. This is some role that they must play. And they must play that effectively. Now, parliamentary committees. There's that score, which again, um, you know, uh, the Money Bills Amendment Procedural Related Matters Act states that set the certain powers that this committee has, that include considering and reporting on spending, amendments of the Division of Revenue, recommendation to the of the FFC and their report, etc. And what then they should then be doing about Section 32 reports that are provided by us uh, on a quarterly basis. So again, the score role in terms of the standing committee on appropriations and the role, what do they do with the information that we provide? Again, with them, individual portfolio committees. And that's where I think uh, I'm reminding you of the point that I mentioned right at the beginning around a member of cabinet or a member of provincial cabinet and what their responsibilities are. I did, right at the beginning, uh, you know, started by saying a member of cabinet must provide parliament with full and regular reports concerning matters under their control. Now, I'm bringing this uh, that constitutional role that they have, that constitutional role that they have. I'm bringing that now to 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 to, to reality in terms of how that should be should be implemented or should be uh, you know uh, you know made made reality in, in terms of day-to-day operations. On one hand, and I'm saying this because we've done it before, some 20 years ago, this is what we did and this is what was working. And I, I've i seen, Chair, you know, with, with, with due respect, in the last few years, I saw this waning down, waning down whereby portfolio committees effectively in Parliament do not use the reports that we generate. They do not use the report that we generate and hold a member of the a parliament and a, sorry, a member of the cabinet or provincial cabinet accountable in terms of spending, performance, budgeting, and planning of their area of responsibility. How do we use the information that we have, that we produce? And it's their information, by the way, it's not the treasurer's information. Our role is to take Section 32 reports and put them all together and make them available to committees and portfolio committees. I'm saying this because I was fortunate that I worked in, on both sides of, 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 of the equation, if you, if you want to call it that. I was in, in provincial budgets for many, many years. I used to be responsible for the budget for Northern Cape, Northwest, and KZN you know, in the early 2000s, late 90s. Now, in terms of those budgets, I would know everything about those provinces, including the departments, and information that we have that we compile in terms of spending, in terms of performance, in terms of non-performance, action or inaction, we will know and will have to make them available. We would come in a portfolio committee of any department, present information and not be hanged, I'm using the word "hanged" very carefully, Chair, and not being hanged for not playing our role as treasury, but simply for saying this is an S-E situation that a member of cabinet or a provincial cabinet member cannot question because we are simply articulating their own information and make it easy for the committee to interact with. And then in that way, the committee then asks tough questions to the member of the executive in the form of the cabinet minister or an MEC, including the HOD, because there are certain accounting officers' responsibilities that they should have performed. And if they did not, the information that we have. Apart from Section 32, we've got depth and information that we, we, we obviously can make available. That would not normally be in other reports because of the nature of the work that we do. We have simply duplicated the treasure in terms of how we structured, duplicated the whole of the state. Um, there are budget analysts for each and every program in government, including provinces. There are provincial experts who understand Eastern Cape in detail, who understand KZN in detail, Western Cape in detail in terms of a new set of extra set pair of eyes over and above the provincial treasury's eyes. So all I can say chair on this matter whereby individual sectors and their accountability and how they should be accountable and what parliament should then be doing is that the treasury at any given point in time will have information that can be used by various uh, committees in terms of them playing their oversight. In that way we can tell on departments. If, if you use a term, loose term that kids use when they play, I'm going to tell on on, on what you do, I'm going to tell on your parents. The treasury and the, and the budget analysts that we have, both for national departments and the budget analysts responsible for municipalities and budget analysts responsible for, for, for provinces, we can tell on a department. We can tell on an activity uh, in a department, from a financial management point of view, from a performance point of view, we have that information. So I think, Chair, all I'm saying is that use the Treasury for what is possible and what, what is possible, what, what it can produce based on legally what information we can put together that we have and that we can do. For, insofar as the budget process is concerned, we have institutionalized processes. We have, And these processes have matured. The, the the budget council is fully functional. The MECs for pro- for, for finance in non provinces, including the Minister of Finance and the Budget Forum, where SALGA comes in, organised local government and, uh, and and you know and and, 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 and the COCTA minister. All of that is institutionalised and it's working. That's supported by the Technical Committee for Finance. It's working. So from an intergovernmental fiscal relations point of view, the systems are in place. To can inform what's happening in provinces. And also, by the way, to can inform generally what's happening in terms of spending across national departments. So, for both provinces, provincial treasuries simply can duplicate what we know and what we have. It is expected that they should have the information. It is expected that the provincial budget analysts that are housed in the treasuries should obviously be able to inform various uh, provincial legislature committees on matters of spending, including deep-rooted issues that may be affecting departments from a performance management point of view, including uh, from a point of view where, how and when, and on what is money spent on. So all of that, uh, uh, that's why I said, it's important that we go to basics in terms of what we can and what we cannot do as as National Treasurer including, and I'm also speaking on behalf of provincial treasurer because uh, we are informed by the same pieces of legislation and our, 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 our roles and responsibilities and duties are articulated in the, in, in the PFMA in the, in the same way. I'm mindful of time. I've got a minute left, including the time that uh, I paused a little bit. Political oversight on the budget process. Um, as the Honorable uh, Karim said, obviously, you don't want to be playing a referee and a player at the same time. That being part of the Budget Council, Budget Forum, obviously, you've got a very limited role. But it's therefore important that we've institutionalized that a, as part of our budget reform for, for parliamentary chairs, at least to be part of those two important forums. But again, it's important that then we are held accountable, at least from a score point of view and from, from provincial scores point of view. Of the guidelines that we issue as alias now for the next budget process. Maybe it's expected that we should go to SCOA and then articulate what the budget guidelines are. In that way, and one honorable member did say, and I forgot who it was, who said, At what point do we influence the budget process at the beginning? Maybe that's the only way, because then once we issue these guidelines, departments would be forced to actually put their budgets in line of the guidelines that we issue around every year around May, June uh, of every year. So it is expected that maybe we have to engage with, with, with various relevant committees at the finance committee or even score to actually agree on broad guidelines that should inform that should inform the budget process so that your oversight is informed by, and you obviously are part of uh, at least at a very high level at the beginning. There are various publications? I'm not going to, go, on. my time is over. Can I take one more minute? Chene? There are other budget uh, uh, publications that that, that we list at the beginning of the year, and again, the process does not start uh, at the time a week or so before the budget, as you know. It's as, as, as again, uh, the, you know, you, you may be aware, it starts much earlier. But I think, as provincial treasuries and national treasuries, parliament should hold us accountable in terms of what the PFMA says or the MFMA says about the role of provincial and national treasury, and including accounting officers. Then we can partner with you. As we tell on our departments, those that are misbehaving, as we tell on, we are then able to go on with you in terms of the insights of what we see as challenges faced by a particular department in a particular province or a particular municipality. As I say, that information we have. So we can enhance the role of parliament in its oversight. We also have to play, be held accountable by parliament in terms of whether we as treasuries, both national and provincial treasuries, are playing our role as articulated in law. Chair, I'll stop there and obviously, interact later with questions as they come. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, uh, uh, Mr. Mukhajane. And now we will request that members indicate they want to engage with this uh, presentations of the panelists, but also take into account that we will be, we will uh, stand by the three minute rule. Please, uh, Honorable Hai and then Honorable Dangor, can we see more hands? Honorable Kanyele, can we see more hands? Le- Honorable Muita, Let me just open this. Yes. Hi, Dangor, Kanyile, Moimang, Muita, Dodovo, and Kanyane. In that order, Honorable. Hi.
6: Uh, thank you very much, Honorable uh, Deputy uh, Chairperson, and also thanks very much uh, to the three uh, presenters. Uh, uh, my question will be to uh, the Auditor General, as well as the DG of Treasure. It's uh, fifteen hours. Sorry.
0: Honourable Dango, can you please mute? Please mute. We will allow Honourable Hai to continue.
6: Thank you, thank you, the Honourable Minister. Chair, there's a new act with regard to the audit. I just want to check uh, with the AG uh, to this issue of uh, a certificate of debt, uh, particularly for the accounting officers. Uh, Has there there been any certificates uh, that have been issued uh, to the accounting officers who have failed to uh, carry out uh, uh, their responsibilities when it comes to financial management? the, the other two questions are to the DG. DG the, the way you're explaining uh, the, the mechanism of uh, ensuring accountability uh, uh, is very impressive. Uh, but the question would be how then this uh, m- uh, monitoring uh, mechanism that uh, um, Treasury has is unable to detect uh, the corruption that is taking place uh, in national departments, in entities, uh, in provincial uh, uh, departments, with, w- when you have all these uh, eyes uh, on the provinces and departments. Uh, the, the last point is uh, the recommendations uh, that uh, come from uh, the committees, the finance, committees and uh, appropriation committees. Um, w- w- when you look at the reports at that are tabled uh, in, 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 in Parliament uh, from these committees, the, there's a sense that uh, um, a Treasury tends to ignore uh, uh, those, those those recommendations. I've highlighted earlier the recommendations and observations uh, that were made Uh, by the finance and appropriation committees uh, that have not uh, as yet uh, uh, been implemented. Uh, If I can make an example, uh, the issue of uh, illicit financial flows, as well as others, uh, there seems to be no uh, response or action that is being taken by uh, uh, treasury with regard to those uh, uh, particular issues. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Chair.
0: Thank you, Honorable High. you kept the time. Honorable Dangor.
7: Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Chair, and thank you to the presenters. Honorable Chair, the philosophy for the, behind the PFMA was that it was a contract, the budget was a contract between the minister and the legislature, and that periodic monitoring thereof should be done. Uh, uh, regarding the triple E's and performance. Uh, The the philosophy also was to allow managers to manage and not to control uh, by agreed to objectives and then hold them to account. And I think we need to look at that very, very carefully. Honorable chair also, I think what we need to look at is that the audit committee that um, engages with the auditor general uh, there's not a strong link between the NCOP and that particular committee because when they're dealing with provinces and local government, I think there need to be a stronger linkage between the NCOP and that particular committee. Thank you very much. Thank you,
2: Honorable Dangor, Honorable Kanyile. Please unmute. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Thank you very much.
8: Chair, let me start by welcoming the the presentation that tried
2: to assist us to to. Please unmute.
5: I'm muted, but I think something goes wrong after that. Can you hear me now?
2: we hear you.
8: Yes, thank you, I'm sorry about that. I'm saying that I want to welcome the presentation that tries to clarify to us the the responsibility when it comes to accountability between the, the, of the accounting officers, accounting authorities, and separating that from that responsibility of the executive authorities, because that has been always a thin line as to say who exactly must then be able to accountable for what in the in the in the in the portfolio committees. Thank you very much for that clarity. And I think it's something that's going to continue to be discussed further. However, one thing that arises out of that is is then the pressure that is always put on what you call the executive the, the, the executive authorities are one of the one case in point is what is happening in Gauteng. And you would know that the pressures that are there about the responsibility, how far can an executive authority go as into their responsibilities in the department? I think it's a discussion that will continue to happen. But the point that is stressed, which I think we should be able to welcome is the fact that there is now clear, and which is something that even as APEC we've been saying is important. There's, there's really clear clear need for a relationship between uh, the, the, the Treasury, whether it's national or province with the various portfolio committees particularly portfolio committees that have to do with uh, with, with financial management uh, including uh, public accounts committees and i must say that you welcome the presentation that was also made by by, by treasury at our recent APEC meeting uh, which we held a week or two ago but just to say that uh, want to stress one of the points that has been made that yes it is true unless we really uh, look at the beginning, unless we look at uh, the, and I think the author general always raises this thing or some that they are, they are trying to encourage, but unless we look at the beginning, the preventative methods, the preventive measures that have been put up by by the manage, by management, unless we have proper oversight on that, we'll never be able to deal with a number of things, because we'll deal with the things at the end when, the, when things have gone wrong. And we welcome the fact that Treasurer said that as part of our sitting, that it's important that they must they must be able to brief us on the guidelines that are there uh, because they are the ones that are going to determine how finances are going to be run throughout the year. And I think I wanted to welcome those. Thank you very much. Those are the comments I wanted to make. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Honorable
2: Moimang. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Deputy Chair, let me also
8: express uh, my appreciation uh, on the presentation from the three uh, presenters. Uh, uh, Indeed, uh, we are much more better equipped now. Just one check from the DG of Treasury in terms of uh, some of the uh, the discussions that were raised uh, here in the morning. I hope uh, the video was part and parcel of uh, of, of, of the discussion. Uh, among the issues raised uh, uh, in the first presentation was that uh, in certain instances, uh, as, as, as 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 Parliament, uh, we have never used the the powers vested in us to amend the. The budget proposals that is put before us, uh, uh, thereby uh, emphasizing the point that, uh, in terms of uh, the, the interventions uh, in certain areas, we have found wanting as this parliament. Uh, an example was made around uh, uh, failure on our part to intervene uh, with the failure to uh, improve our taxes. Uh, our tax uh, uh, rates, uh, uh, particularly given the pandemic uh, crisis that we are going through, uh, 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 particularly uh, those that the, the, those that are doing well, uh, but of course we are mindful of the always the argument raised to say, let's let's let let's, let's, let, let, let's not make it uh, difficult for business to thrive, uh, so that. Uh, we are also able to then uh, they're also able to, to 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 generate profits that will enable us as government to test but i'm more interested in terms of uh, uh, those uh, uh, questions that we raised uh, the second one also was also around uh, the, the the power of of, of the press from uh, from uh uh, uh Dr. I, uh, uh, I think the emphasis was that uh, uh, there is a need on our part to, 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 to uh, navigate between the separation of powers, uh, while at the same time, uh, there is no application of responsibility on our part to, to uh, use. Uh, the budget offices, uh, parliamentary budget offices to to, uh, make those strategic intervention where there is a a convergence of you to say it is necessary. I think in this instance, I want to raise one point. Uh, uh, What the, I think with the budget, uh, uh, what the strategic workshop that at some point we had earlier this year, the issue of the hundred million, uh, that must be paid over by Parliament to, to Parliament was raised as an, as an as an item that is making the parliamentary budget to to, to look bloated uh, because on the face of it one can assume that uh, our budget is, is is quite adequate. Only to find that that hundred million must be paid over to Parliament. So I just want to check as to whether from your. From from, from your assessment, uh, uh, do you think there's a role uh, for that collaborative effort between the Treasury and the Parliamentary Budget Offices, which is still evolving? But of course, mindful of the fact that uh, there are issues that we raised around uh, the the evolving nature of the office uh, vis a vis uh, the capacity. But uh, uh, other than that, I think I'm getting what uh, the uh, articulation that we raised around uh, what this is that we could do uh, in terms of uh, true reports that will put us in a much more better position uh, as we interface with the, with the executing authority at the level of the select committees. Uh, the, uh, I think I'm happy, I'm happy with, the, with, the, with, the AG, with the AG because uh, of the number of errors that we alluded to uh, around the issue of uh, leadership, around the issue of uh, lack of quasi-crisis around the amendment made. Uh, I think the first the first presenter, uh, I, I suspect that's where uh, I, will, uh, I, will, I, will, I had a, a bit of uh, difficulty. I think that we' at, at the point where, where he started. Um, I think there are a number of questions that that were we'll posed. Do our MPs, uh, are our MPs empowered enough? Uh, do political parties empower their MPs? Are they trained enough? Uh, are we empowered enough to comprehend and appreciate the complexities of the financial system? Uh, uh, which, to a certain extent, uh, created a bit of tension from my side. Uh, I hope, I hope, I hope uh, uh, the presenter was not think professor chi was not uh, 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 casting doubts on uh, on the ability of uh, of entities uh, to to uh, exercise their their responsibilities uh, i think the the, the the parliament has involved uh, through the partnership with the European Union there's been a number of programs uh, uh, from the certificate in uh, uh, public leadership and governance uh, advanced CTGK, and those critical aspects uh, that you alluded to there uh, has been an integral part uh, 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 modules on project management modules on, uh, on, 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 on policies uh, uh, even to the extent uh, that uh, uh, we do not just stand at the level of the advanced diploma diploma in uh, public leadership uh, uh, others entities proceeded to to masters and and, uh, and doctorate uh, so i think what, what what is critical is to appreciate the fact that uh, 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 there is an evolution in terms of our skills revolution. Uh, the, all of us are not starting, uh on the same on, 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 on the same uh, uh, steps, uh, but at the same time, uh, it is important to appreciate that uh, Parliament has, uh, has 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 uh, uh, become a process of ensuring that indeed there is an enhancement uh, in terms of uh, the ability and capacity of entities to be able to execute their work diligently. Thank you, yeah Yeah,
0: and now I realize what Mokhoi Mokhoi spoke about, but I will not repeat it. Honorable Peter. <laughs> <Rita. laughs>
9: hey, thanks, Chair. Let me first apologize profusely to you, Honorable Chair, I have a challenge with my gadget on showing the face. Can you really pardon me on that? You may continue. Thank you very much, Chair. Let me as well, Chair, appreciate the presentations that we received today. They are quite really helpful uh, to us as members of parliament. Uh, the question that I have is directed to the DJ. Uh, 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 DG, I am quite excited and, and, and uh, 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 at the same breath disappointed, I'm sure you would help me on this one, that you have tools that enabled you as treasury to monitor provinces, to monitor municipalities, to monitor possibly SOE's budgets but you have a situation where you have municipalities that get to the extent of not having a budget for service delivery and also unable to pay, to pay workers You know, in a state of collapse. Yet there are these people that are sitting there that are able to pick up those things And again, you have a situation where you are saying your intergovernmental relations is quite active and working. And how do you really tell us your achievements in terms of that intergovernmental relations program that you have that talks to budgets of different entities and municipalities? Because you have a situation where a department at a provincial level will receive reports from municipalities. But still, each department is unable at a provincial level now to pick up that this municipality is collapsing. Do you have powers when you pick up such things to be able to say, municipality number one, two, three, this is what you should do. And if you are unable to do this, these uh, this this are consequences for you not being able to do this. Yes, I did uh, some time this week or last week, see your letter to ADM, Amatole District Municipality. And as well, I was quite excited for the first time that we are clear, do this and this and that. Allow councilors, council to do this and, and and act on one, two, three. So why is this not being something that is regularly happening? So that you avoid a situation where entities and also municipalities, they get to collapse, yet there are systems in place to monitor those. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Honorable Leader, Honorable Dodoho.
10: Uh, Thank, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Chair. Let me also uh, express my appreciation to, to the presentations. I think uh, they, they were very, very good and spot on, especially in, in terms of outlining what are the challenges that are facing accountability and what systems uh, must be put in place in that, in that respect. Now, to, to the three presenters, uh, my question is a uh, cut across. And the question is, why will such good structures, systems, and processes put in place in relation to the legislative framework, the policy framework, and the regulatory framework? we continue to have the problems that we have, uh, especially the deteriorating financial situation uh, at municipal level and and to some extent at provincial and national level. I'm asking this question because for me, there is no question and I hear uh, presenters for me speaking in general terms in terms of what are the challenges that are obtained, that there is lack of time for members of parliament, uh, somehow there is lack of capacity, uh, no adequate resources, and, and, and all of that. For me, I think that we are shy to confront what I call the, the element with the elephant in the room. There is a big problem that I think we are confronting to, where we are failing to confront. And for me, the problem is uh, poor ethical leadership. Because once this is obtained within the public service, there there will not be accountability or it will go down. Uh, Consequence management will not apply. People will act with impunity, without due care and due diligence and with the understanding that we are handling the public resources and those must benefit uh, the public as such. And this poor ethical leadership, both administrative and, 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 and political, it is a source in my view that inhibit effective accountability. Because once you, you have people who handle such resources, resources of major magnitude, and they act with impunity, it becomes a problem. And I lack that emphasis uh, in the presentations. For example, uh, AG, uh, with the amendment of the Public Audit Act, there is what what is called material irregularities to ensure that we enforce and we hold those who are responsible accountable. For me, I want to see this working in practice. Uh, going straight to the people who are responsible for this, uh, holding head accounting officers accountable in this particular instance. And I, I want a situation where there is a collaborative effort between different players, especially the law enforcement agencies, that they work together, that they prioritize this particular matter to ensure that we uproot whatever that is wrong, including corruption within the system. Uh, for me, this is perpetuated because we, we do not, we do have systems and structures in place, as you, I highlighted, in terms of the bodies that are in place, in terms of the structures, in terms of the procedures that are in place. But once you lack ethical leadership to can drive to can this particular process, we go nowhere. Once we protect those who are corrupt and who are feeding and who are pillaging the resources of the state, it means we are not going anywhere, and I would love that that emphasis must be there in terms of dealing with all these particular problems. And I want to hear your comment on that, so, so that when I understand that it's only me who has this major concern about what is happening, and therefore we are not confronting this particular elephant that is in the that is in the in the room. Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Deputy Chair. Thanks. Thank you. The last person
0: will be Honourable Enock Tetwa.
11: Allow you. Thank you so much, Chair. My apology as well for the video, and to raise my hand after you have closed uh, the hands. Um, Chair, my question is going directly to the AG. You know, AG, I think. Do you have a list of these people that are collapsing the entities and uh, uh, the 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 government, uh, the municipalities. Because for me, AG should have already had the data of these people. Because they are, they are, these are one and the same faces that move from one area to the to the other area. So what impunity that they are or any assistance that is being assisted to these government entities, I'm sure, Chair, there are, are not a number of them. And they knew that so and so if he has joined this entity automatically that entity is going to get uh, is going to collapse so what is it we have been talking about this now and then but we are not hearing ag saying that look this member or this person we are not going to uh, allow him to take over to this municipality because of his previous record and they know the facts because uh, AG is the one that is auditing all over. Those are my questions, Chair. Thank you very much again for allowing me. in.
0: Thank you very much. Any one of the panelists can, can begin to respond to the issues that have been raised. I know most of the questions actually went to Treasury, but I think any one of you, it's uh, AG, if you are ready, you may continue.
4: Thank you very much, Honourable Deputy Chair, and thank you to the Honourable members for the different questions. I'll attend to um, three or four questions that were posed, but I'll, I'll deal with it in three in three buckets. The first one arises from the comment or the question from Honourable High, and it's relating to the Public Audit Act as amended. I think it's important for me to point out a couple of um, facts in terms of how that act operate or that, what that amendment uh, is intended to do. The amendment became effective from the 1st of April 2019. So really, we've been implementing this for two years now. And we started in the first year by applying the implications of this law across a very small number of auditees. So we have only had one year where we've applied it beyond the initial 16 auditees to 89 auditees in the PFMA cycle. So we're in a journey towards implementing it. What it does, maybe let me start by what informs it. It came out of a concern around inadequate and inappropriate consequence management um, within the public sector, especially as it was meant to arise from our audit recommendations at the end of each audit cycle. And at each order cycle, we kept lamenting that we were not seeing consequences being, being implemented. The role of the accounting officer incorporates, as set out in session 38, a responsibility for the accounting officer to detect irregular expenditure or misconduct or non-compliance. And once it's been detected either by themselves or by the auditors, they're required to follow up on whether or not something, well, figure out what actually went, went wrong by investigating. They're required to then take the requisite action, whether it's training the people within the environment whether it's uh, implementing disciplinary action on the employees in the department or public entity. And they're also required to stem the losses. If a contract was issued inappropriately, they're supposed to cancel the contract, get the money back that they may have been overpaying because of an irregular contract. And they're also supposed to report matters to the law enforcement agencies where there is an indication that the law has been broken. Those responsibilities sit in the hands of the accounting officers. The Public Audit Act as amended, essentially creates a tool for the auditor general to complement the role of different players in the system of public finance management. If an accounting officer does what they're supposed to do, where let's say at the end of an audit, we flag irregular expenditure, or we flag non-compliance, if they do what they're required to do, which is investigate, get the facts, uh, discipline, cancel contracts, get money back, and report to law enforcement, then we never have to implement our new powers. What these powers really do is that they say, if you find in the course of your audit that there has been irregular expenditure or some or other non-compliance, AG, we want you to dig further. We want you to go and assess whether there's been financial loss because irregular expenditure or non-compliance may not lead to financial loss. It may be an indication of something else, which still warrants attention, but might not be as urgent. So we're now compelled to implement the material irregularity process, which uh, Honorable Dodovu and Honorable Tetra referred to. And in this process, our job is to refer a matter for investigation if we've been convinced that the non-compliance led to financial loss we refer it for investigation if the accounting officer doesn't do it. If the accounting officer does it, then we don't have to act further, ours is to follow up. If the accounting officer gets an, an investigations report and they do nothing with it, which tends to be an issue, then we are supposed to issue a recommendation to the accounting officer, setting out the action that they should take, which action will be informed about what they should have been doing anyway. And if they take the requisite action, then we don't have to do anything further. It's only if they still fail to take that recommended action, then we will issue binding remedial action. And that then is an escalation of the matter. Uh, the matter becomes that much more serious. Once we've issued binding remedial action, which will include an indication of the time frame within which that action must be taken. And if the accounting officer does what's necessary, we then will leave the matter. If they still fail to implement, then we issue a certificate of law. Now I've mapped out a journey and a story about how this will be implemented. And that's consistent with how the law has been designed because it's got to respect that the, the accounting officer in the system of public finance management, the accounting officer remains the central point of accountability. So we don't take over the role of accounting officer. If they do what's required, then we don't have to act. We only act when there's failure. I also map out the story because it demonstrates that in the journey to do, towards this doing this, we give the accounting officer every opportunity to take the action that they're supposed to take. So that by the time we issue a certificate of debt in their name, and it's issued in their name because they have failed to do what they're supposed to do in law. By the time we issue that certificate of debt, which affects them in a, on a personal level, We've got to make sure that our process was fair. We've got to demonstrate that we've given them every opportunity to act, such that that certificate of debt debt will then be able to to be defendable. It's also designed like that because it doesn't take over the role of accounting officers, but it also doesn't take over the role of executive authorities who are supposed to supervise and support accounting officers to take the requisite action. And it also doesn't take away the role of oversight. When an accounting officer comes in front of you and we've issued a notification of a material irregularity and we we are public about those, we report on those in the public domain. You will have in your hand, at the time that you get an annual report and an audit report, you have in your hand a report that sets out a material irregularity that's been found. And you can engage that accounting officer on what action are they taking? How are they stemming loss? How are they disciplining? How are they training? How are they closing the internal control weaknesses that led to this problem? And also what are they reporting to law enforcement as, as maybe maybe necessary? And I also mapped out the process because you can see then it takes time. And that's the design of it. And what I will highlight now is that we will not hesitate to act when we need to. However, at this point, in the second year of implementing, the first of which includes a number of ODTs now, we found a number of, of, of material irregularities, seventy five to be to be specific, um, which amount to an estimated financial loss of six point nine billion rand. We have not yet issued a certificate of debt because we've got to follow the process. And where we are with many of those is that we've issued a notification. The accounting officers have responded by committing to taking particular action that we've assessed to be adequate and appropriate we will continue to follow up. Where they don't take that action or they don't follow through, then we will implement our powers. So it will take time before we issue a certificate of date. However, as an audit office, and I think you know us well enough by now, we will not hesitate to issue that certificate of date. I hear the impatience and I hear Honorable Dodovu talking, I think it was Honorable are talking about how, let's see the collaboration between yourselves and the other body. I will give you this this good news, though. Uh, I know we started this session with reference by my fellow panelists, that the AG only gives bad news. A little bit of good news is that on the one hand, accounting officers are proving to be responsive. We will continue to follow up. On the other hand, is that when we did the COVID-19 special reports, those were early audits on the expenditures of COVID-19 relief funds we identified instances of matters that we needed to refer to law enforcement. So we referred a number of matters to the law enforcement agencies and the investigative bodies that are part of the fusion center. And they were able to follow up on those findings and actually end up with the recovery of funds on the one hand, but also you've seen people be, get, get into the dock, either for attempting to defraud the UIF or even SASA, and you've seen people having to pay money back when they'd been overpaid by the UIF in particular. What that tells you is that we are starting to see some responsiveness in the system by accounting officers, by executive authorities, as we saw, particularly in the case of UIF and SASA with the COVID-19 relief funds, and within the law enforcement agencies, where in the context of the fusion center, we were able to collaborate such that we got money back into the fiscus. So UIF got 3.4 billion rand back into their coffers quickly um, as a result of our audit work last year. Um, you're also starting to see consequences, visible consequences that are being taken up by law enforcement agencies. So we'll continue to look for every opportunity to collaborate with all of these bodies so that we achieve what we need to which is to not only prevent problems, but to act quickly enough when they arise so that we can get money back before it diminishes and also apply visible consequences, because that's what we all want, so that we push back on a culture that tends to tolerate non-compliance. Our key outcome will be, yes, a certificate of debt, but probably more importantly, an improvement in the level of accountability and consequence management within the public sector. Honorable um, Dango talked about accounting about about the audit committees and whether or not the committees of the NCOP can or should be interacting with them. Um, we would suggest that you do in the course of looking at the annual financial statements, of talking to the accounting officer about the outcomes of their audit. And I know the Scopa would do a lot of that. But as portfolio committees, you have every opportunity to look at the and not report and the audit report. And in the course of talking to the accounting officers about their quarterly performance reports or media performance reports, or even about their budgets for the upcoming year, you can and should be using that opportunity to ask critical questions about, well, last year you had a problem with performance information. How are you dealing with, with it this year so that you can be comfortable that your performance information is credible? Last year we saw that you had a prevalence of non-compliance findings. How are you dealing with them so that you can give us comfort that this year will be different? You're not going to have so much leakage or so many non-compliances that diminish the confidence of the public. Um, So I would encourage that you have the audit committees avail themselves to talk to you as and when you need to so that you can get direct confirmation from them on how they're supporting the accounting officer to drive improvements in internal controls, to deal with audit findings from the previous year, or even to deal with material irregularities as identified and reported by the AG. Um, the Office of the AG reports into SCOAG um, in Parliament. And part of our, our, our engagement with, with SCOAG when we deal with our audit outcomes for our corporate in terms of our own accountability as an office. Part of that engagement includes the chairman of the audit committee and the audit committee sometimes even comes with all of the members there and they engage directly with SCOEG, often with us not even being in the room. The AG and the DAG would not be in the room and the conversation would be a very frank one where the opportunity is given to the audit committee to engage directly with SCOEG and give them a sense of what their view is on our own internal controls and our own accountability as an institution. So I would encourage that that, um, oversight. Uh, engages with audit committees in that way. Um, The matter around ethics, Section 195 of the Constitution, Honorable Dodov was very clear about the basic values and principles that should govern public administration. And we also believe as an audit office that ethical culture is got to be one of those things that an accounting officer is seized with. Because it's one thing to establish the controls and the standard operating procedures, a better thing if that happens in the context where there is a very clear tone of a commitment to ethical conduct. In our preventative controls guide that we did together with the treasury, we actually start out with that assertion and we provide for the use of um, oversight to some questions and that, that can drive the inquiry between oversight and the accounting officers so that you can get comfort on the level of commitment that an accounting officer has to establishing a culture of ethical conduct. In terms of the people who move between entities and municipalities, people who have been alleged or even found to have done wrong, Honorable Mteto, I think the critical thing here is probably around collaboration. The Public Service Commission produces reports, reports about this, and I think it can be a tool or for oversight to use to track decisions that whomever is appointing new people either in the municipality or department or public entities, if somebody's name has been flagged through those reports of the PSC and they emerge as a senior appointment in a particular role, you'd be able to track that and engage directly with that accounting officer that's appointing them or even with the executive authority um, that, that may be responsible for that, for that appointment. Um, Honorable Deputy Chair, I will end my remarks. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Otherwise, we won't have enough time to continue with the program. But thank you very much. I think you elaborately responded. Any one of the other panelists that want to?
5: No, to thank, you, thank you very invite? much. Yeah, maybe let me quickly do that. I will. I will respond by using um, orchestra as an example of what I want to say. In an orchestra, you've got percussionists. You've got brass band brass people you've got basswood people who play you know you've got all of the different people that play in this orchestra. now if one of them is out of tune, then that melody and that sound that you want to hear you won't get it. There'll be a discord and and then people will leave the theater and leave and you'll play alone. In many an institution in South Africa in municipalities in departments in entities, you've got an orchestra which is dysfunctional to an extent. But people, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, deliberately don't want to play along. And there are many players. Think about who is in this orchestra, in this theater. It's us accounting officers, we play in that space, in the internal audit departments, AG as, uh, you know, the AG just said now, executive authorities, you've got, um, you know, Um, you know, and beat adjudication committee, beat evaluation committee, they all play in this orchestra. Now, if the guy who's sitting in the front and who's coordinating this and she's not coordinating accordingly, then you'll have a problem because they would not know and pick up when one band member is not playing along or they will choose not to understand that this band player is not playing along. Now, in this orchestra, we can only identify in terms of what I was saying to the committee, I mean, to this workshop today. I was saying we've got data, we've got information that suggests what is at play in a municipality or in a problem. We can tell who spent, what they spent the money on. What I cannot tell you, which is part of this orchestra, is when the band member in the form of the CFO or the BID Education Committee members are not in line with what Mr. Tudov is talking about. If the ethical foundations that underpin their role, I as treasury sitting in Pretoria or somewhere in, in, in a provincial treasury, I'm not going to be able to see what's happening in the province. And if that is detected, what then is the role of the accounting officer? If they detect that two or three of their bid adjudication people are bought by some service provider who will, in a corrupt manner award uh, uh, they turned to wrongfully so. I cannot see that. The wrong that uh, uh, Honorable Nita is talking about, I cannot see, including the wrong that Honorable high uh, is talking about, I cannot see. But what I can tell is that the system is functioning. We've got rules. Accounting officers know their responsibilities. Accounting officers know their roles. The supply chain policies are in place. That talks about process. Now, that has developed and that's there. But in playing this music, it's very difficult to know where we are. But if the system can only function if there's detection of wrongdoing and there's action that's taken. If it's not taken, then the system won't function. And the questions that honorable members are asking then becomes relevant. The Treasury, where are you when all of these things? You are saying you have got good systems, but stealing continues. You've got good systems, but uh, you know, just to give an example, in this orchestra, as an example, you've got the council in a municipality somewhere in, a, in, in you know 250 plus municipalities. If this council chooses to pass an unfunded budget, it ceases to become a national treasury responsibility. This council at a corner somewhere in the corner of South Africa decided to pass a, and they know very well, by the way, the council will know how do you pass a budget that's not funded because service delivery is going to be affected. Expectations by communities are not going to be met. You are going to then falsely give a picture that's not real in terms of what the council is able to deliver, not able to deliver. Again, if the system is not functioning in its entirety, the AG is talking about a public governance system or you can call it a public finance system. There's many players in it. There's the treasury. There's the council. There's uh, you know the, the the cabinet, the political uh, oversight committees by parliament and provisionalists. The, the system functions, and the fact that it's not functioning because somewhere in the orchestra, someone is playing uh, you know with, with the a wrong instrument. And as a result, we are not able to. So I'm trying to answer the two questions, the comments that were made by Honourable High and Honourable. Um, in terms of of, uh, where things go terribly wrong. The system can also function if from a vertical and horizontal division of revenue point of view, if funding to local government will make a recommendation as treasurer to the political process. The political process will sign off on it. The political process at executive level will come to parliament and present the budget. If this budget is the division of revenue bill that you present clearly is of the view, and and in fact, the fact is some municipalities are not well-funded, which is a reality. But then we pass the budget without questioning because we will think where I am that this, based on the resources available, based on the estimates and the modeling that I've done, these are my best estimates that us as Treasury can put together to submit to Parliament through the Cabinet uh, approval. But again, we, we, if you look at the whole conversation in the last two days, the system, this orchestra can only function if we are also held accountable in terms of the funding streams going to municipalities. Is it enough? Is it not enough, including the the, the, the vertical division of revenue processes. Now, the, the, the point that Honorable Dove is making is, is quite important for me because it, it's, one, it's an elephant that no one, we cannot speak about openly and, and you know all, all the time and then you know then we are obviously and we do by the way and we are seen to be but we know the process is what, what the issues are what on robert is talking about in terms of knowingly knowing exactly what we need to be doing including political players at the provincial level at the municipal level at the national level interference as an example interference by minister Tito bohany in supply chain imagine him coming to, to, to Treasury and saying to me, that person must get this tender for that thing. It is the worst thing that can ever happen. He should not, and he should know that he's not playing any role. He does not have a role in supply chain. Procurement remains the responsibility of the accounting officer. I intend have to have systems in place. If I willfully don't put a strong internal audit component in place in the Treasury, then I'm not. the, the orchestra is not functioning because the, a strong internal audit will give me signs. A strong internal audit in a department somewhere in a province will give the province or the provincial treasurer an idea. Sitting in Pretoria, I'm not going to understand what that municipality does, when clearly the facts are not on the table. But what I know is that a, a, what the PFMA says, and what I said earlier on in terms of legislation, I'm able to produce a section 32 that says, this province or this department budget so much After six months, they spend so much and they're going to spend so much. They're going to exceed or not exceed. I can say that. And I can also have a view around and saying that if they continue doing like this, service delivery will be affected. If they continue, I can only make those observations. But the ins and outs, the details, there's an accounting officer, provincial oversight structures are in place, internal audit of the province. In some cases, we've got a provincial audit for, I mean, an audit committee for all the departments or or pay department. I think. The system, the orchestra is functioning, then it makes life easy for, for everyone. Now, Honorable Kanye, how far can executive go clear needs relationship? I think I've answered that in terms of you know, I'm saying there's there's limits. There's limits in terms of the executive authority, what they can and what they cannot do. The moment the moment politicians start interfering with some of the key accounting officer responsibilities, that's when the system will start collapsing. And that's what you should discourage. I think for this system to function, for us to realize the dream, the the, the dream that we have, uh, you know, uh, as, as a country that, that 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 has got a bad, a very bad history, and that we are trying to fix from 1994 onwards. I think for us, I think it's, it's, it's the, all of these these systems must function together. I think, you know, Honourable Members, I think the AG did touch on a number of points that I was going to make. The same. But I think I've tried to, the best of my ability, Honourable Deputy Chairperson, to, to respond to some of the comments. Thank, thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Mr. Mohajani, Professor Chiyoyo, is there anything that you want to add to what the two panelists have already responded to?
3: Yes, Madam Deputy Chair, I think most of the points were covered. And uh, if I can just highlight one thing, is <laughs> uh, me emphasising the need for training is that uh, knowing is not enough. So after our MPs or the members of committees go for those training, access training, informal or formal, we need to see the result. The result will be when all the issues that are being raised by Madam Auditor General and uh, by the DG of National Treasury are being addressed, then we can say we have moved uh, forward. And coming to the issue of ethical leadership and uh, in uh, my recommendation uh, beside the training, I also alluded to the issue of enforcing ethical conduct through code of conduct. So this can be emphasized through training as well, where the members, and here I'm mostly talking about the members uh, of uh, finance committees or portfolio committees, to start knowing what is their duties, especially coming to the oversight. And here it goes with the old package when we talk of consequence management. And we need to think of this holistically, where systems, uh, the system approach is uh, adopted or embraced, where all the um, role players or stakeholders are playing their different roles at different levels so that um, the oversight role of parliament can take place as it should be. So training is important. If it is already happening, that is a very good good thing. But we need to see a result in uh, the way the committees are managing the oversight and where we can start seeing results. So the oversight has to be um, leading to positive results, where we minimize the occurrence of unethical behavior and misuse of public money. So that's all I, I can say, and thank you so much, uh, for this time.
0: Once again, thank you very much to all our three esteemed panelists. I think you have really informed us, you have enlightened us, and you have developed us. And it is just depending on ourselves, how we are going to use the knowledge and information that we are getting through this, uh, wonderful opportunity. We are going to continue with our program and the next two uh, uh, panelists will be on municipal finance management act and the role of parliament both the two speakers that we the, or the presenters that we are having here dr david Mohale and mr Tembi karimeng is uh, local government practitioners at heart first and foremost but also development uh, studies and philosophy, uh, philosophy and policy uh, uh, experts. So we are going to give to Dr. David Mohale, who is holding a PhD in development studies from the University of South Africa to immediately continue with the discussion and then will be followed by Ms. tembi and Karimeng, the president of, is it president of the uh, South African Local Government Association. So, over to you, Dr. Mohale.
8: Uh, Honorable Deputy Chair of the NCOP, Uh, my warm greetings to you and your colleagues. I, perhaps I need to confirm if I'm audible enough, Chair. Yes, I, indeed you are. OK, f- f- thank, you. thank you very much. Uh, in the interest of time, let me confirm that I left government a few years ago, so I'm no longer sure about the, the protocols. I suppose it suffices that I've acknowledged you and honorable members of the NCUP and NPLs. I've, I think I also need to pass my warm regards to the, to the three previous presenters as well as the president of Salga. Uh, Chair, I... I must, I, I, I need to put this disclaimer uh, that uh, I did share my slides with one of the administrators, but I suppose that you will be able, you will be in a position to share that once I've, I've, I'm done with the presentation. Mm-hmm. I'm the first to admit that sometimes my PowerPoint slides are not as useful as they should be because they often tend to contain uh, concepts, but I did my best this time around to try to uh, populate with some explanatory notes, so that the person who is reading on, the, on their own can be able to follow the arguments that have been advanced. Uh, and again, I'm, I also need to point out that having listened to the discussion yesterday morning, that prompted me to change my approach altogether in order to deal with the issue at hand. Uh, realizing that I'm sure you would be the first to admit to ourselves that the two peak was rather very too broad. As the result, one was not set, uh, very certain as to how to approach it but in anyhow having listened to the discussions yesterday morning they helped me to uh, to put together my tentative thoughts that i want to share with you and i think taking cue from the previous discussion i want to propose that perhaps we need to to, to start from uh, from the beginning in this way that in many instances when we discuss structures and institutions we forget that at the very elementary level uh, the people who comprise, I mean, there are people who comprise those structures and institutions. And where I happen to be working on a full-time basis, we are moving from the premise that human beings are not a resource, but rather they are a source of everything that happened. Uh, and we, the approach that we use and which it is what I want to put forward, and this will be supported later by the quotation that I'm gonna use from the from the latest or the most recent 2018, 2019 MFMA report from the Auditor General, is that for an organization to function successfully and achieve its strategic objectives, that is primarily a function of your human resource provision processes and systems. Uh, and of course, uh, there's a common saying that uh, human beings or people are, are, are our most important or priced asset. But I want to suggest that it's not always the case. Perhaps we need to underscore and qualify that we do need the right people to be in place. And to borrow from one author who has written a number of, uh, I mean, of best-selling books on the topics of leadership and management, Jim Collins, in 2001, he suggested that a right person would be a kind of an individual who uh, would be a disciplined, who has disciplined thought, and whose behavior is disciplined, and in part, I think as I go along with presentation, I will try to address myself to the, to the question raised by Honorable Dodov in terms of where I, I also am of opinion as well that, in as far as legislation is concerned, in as far as policy interventions are concerned, I think we're at a stage where we are sitting with policy overload. I do think that with the experience that we have, specifically with 21 years of now of a transformed, uh, a rationalized local government and 27 doing, doing years since our birth of democracy. We need to be in a position where, we, for the first time, perhaps we need to confront the soft issues that continue to, to frustrate our our, our, our laudable governance uh, objectives. And once we've got the right people in place, obviously expectation, and this is an educated guess, is that these people will then help you with development of efficient systems and processes. Uh, because once we've got people that are not adequate to, to help the organization to perform, you would need this uh, as the heartbeat of the organization in place of the defined goals. And of course, we also need to appreciate, and I don't think this is where the problem starts. We need to appreciate that the as smartest as organization will have its own rules in place that will be known. You come in an organization as a new member, you will be taken through an induction. We need to appreciate the fact that there will always be conflict between what would call institutional rules in news. And these are often the, the informal rules that people uh, do make as, as, as they do go along. And with a bit of the 12 years that I've, I've, I've spent in local government as a practitioner, I want to argue that for some reasons perhaps that we may we may not deal with uh, in today and we may not have answers to, uh, I suppose, is oh, how is it so easier that people often tend to bring their own rules and within a short period of time they overcome? Uh, or they create a culture which is an antithesis of the formal rules that have been adopted by an organization. And for example, around 2007, I think National Trade passed uh, regulations on minimum competence requirements. Uh, by the time I left local government in 2017, I think there had been few extensions already with every now and then with the next two or why certain people have not yet uh, complied with the rules that were that were that were passed in 2007, and I do I do think if I recall well, that part of what had to happen in an event that a person is appointed and does not meet minimum requirements, there had to be exemption or approval uh, done by the NEC on condition that within a particular time the senior
2: manager would have complied with this minimum requirements, requirement. and that has not been the case. Now. Can we get
8: assistance? Am I lost, Chen?
0: At least you are back. You may continue.
8: Oh, oh OK. Thank you, Chen. So Chen, I was saying that I think the question which I want, I will be putting forth in order to, to, to deal with is in an attempt to answer the question, what should be the role of the parliament is, what is it that defines or informs the mismatch between the police intention and and, and the actual performance? And I want to locate this in the context of what South Africa started to do, at least at ideological level, there has been that discernible shift between 2003, 2005, when for the first time, increasingly, uh, both the ruling party and government started to use the concept Of the developmental state, uh, and that discourse has taken root, has been institutionalized in our policy discourse uh, over time. Of course, there's been a debate as to what exactly that is. But my my tentative suggestion for the purpose of this presentation is that it goes back to where I started. A developmental state is nothing but about the combination of structures through institutional arrangements, if you like and the roles that they play in order to achieve the stated objectives and at the heart of the structures and the roles that have been carried out. As I said in the beginning, uh, it, 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 it is the people. Therefore, post-1994, what would, what would we describe as the overarching strategic objective of the political program or post apartheid state? And I, because I know that this may be a sensitive topic for some members and I'm aware of the, of the public discourse at the present, regarding the so-called depoliticization of the public office. I want to suggest that because the ruling party has got its own outlook in as far as the reconstruction of South Africa is concerned, I want to quote what it says from its strategy and tactics and perhaps begin to contextualize our conversation and what therefore should be the role of local government. And it says, if there were to be any single measure of the civil mission of national democratic revolution, it will be how it treats the most vulnerable in our society, close quote. And it is within this context that the constitution establishes three spheres of government, interdependent yet distinct, in order to, to ensure that to quote again from the uh, from the preamble of the constitution, there is a line that there that says, in order to ensure that we address the problem, perhaps best defined in the executive summary of the national democrat, I mean of the national development plan. Our constitution says, we seek to improve the quality of life of all citizens, and free the potential of each citizen. And in order to address the question of the kind of of public servants that are needed to confront this strategic problem, the ANC further proposes an intervention and it says that, and I quote, as such, if there were to be any central factor to the progress of the South African nation in this period of movement to a new phase, it is the quality of the ANC, its leadership, its catership and its membership close quote. And we're not talking ANC, but it is important that we start here because at the end of the day, majority of parliamentarians, majority of members in councils, majority of uh, our cabinet uh, is almost exclusively African National Congress. And the principle is therefore that in order for every structure to perform, our starting point should be, what is the quality of people we have and place in these structures in other kill developmental futures. And I'm deliberately speaking about uh, starting there because we often ignore the fact that political parties are the source of state capacity. They provide personnel, they provide policies, they design programs. And it is important that if we are to address this pertinent questions that we think we need to deal with, we need to start from the beginning. Now, where are we as far as our state of, of accountability is concerned in a country? A number of reports as far as local government has been produced. I read in detail, few years ago, the the report that was produced under the late uh, in which he later produced local government and our strategy. I think thereafter, Minister Bravin came with another intervention. There had been many other interventions before then. Perhaps in order to understand what we should be doing, and this may be an unfair question, uh, I mean, uh, or problematization to ourselves as members of parliament, but you are asking us to help in terms of what we need to do. And I remembered of what Mohen said in 2016, when he delivered the judgment against parliament, and I want to quote one paragraph there. He says, and I quote, one of the crucial elements of our constitutional vision is to make a decisive break from the unchecked abuse of the power and resources. Uh, if I may pause, the auditor general now and then, uh, I mean, reports do a point, uh, or do point to suspected and sometimes evident cases of, state, of abuse of state resources. That was virtually institutionalized during apartheid era. To achieve this goal, we adopted accountability, the rule of law, and the supremacy of the Constitution as values of our constitutional democracy, at close quote. Let me proceed to indicate what the auditor general says in the recent MFMA report, and which, which supports the, uh, my introduction. The report says, in part, Those that are required to supervise and monitor adherence to fiscal management laws are not doing so or are not effective in the steps they have taken so far. This problem is compounded by the indisputable reality that the money allocated to delivery of certain specified outcomes is no longer in the bank, and and that for which it was earmarked has not been delivered or achieved. There is not much to go around yet the right hands are not at the table. So as you can tell from this quotation, the problem is not partly, not only what the the DG Australia spoke about that it is indeed true that in many instances, on one hand, we'll have a problem of councils passing budgets, not having paid attention to revenue streams and how they're gonna raise that, uh, I mean, uh, funds to, 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 I mean, money to fund their programs. But on one hand, there will be money in the bank account but these monies will disappear at, 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 at worst. At best, they will be used for different purposes altogether. The energy then continues again. The outcomes were characterized, and specifically here he speaks about the free state. The outcomes were characterized by a lack of basic financial disciplines and unwillingness to comply with legislation. And this is the point that I think Honorable Rodov was making. And a general disregard for internal controls and accountability. Last year, we reported on the total breakdown of internal control and poor leadership responses towards improving the situation. The trend continued this year, inevitably leading us to the conclusion that there is a deliberate, and I think this is the word that we must underline because it speaks to the notion of ethics. There is a deliberate lack of accountability by the political and administrative leadership in the province. And I, the point that I made, uh, Chair, at the beginning, that we need to ask the fundamental question about the people that we have are the right people. What is their orientation? Is the orientation about development as a spouse and in the constitution, or they enter into the space to pursue a new subculture that altogether contradicts what the constitution wants us to do. And this is where, at, at a broad strategic level, I want to suggest that the South African parliament could feature it. We want to build a developmental state. In the past, we do not that we do know that legislature was kept effectual when you look at the history of East Asian states. But the nature of democracy we are pursuing in South Africa does not allow a parliament to become a spectator in this noble project of constructing a developmental state. Now the big question then becomes: is the Municipal Finance Management Act I mean, what, what, what is its effect in the broader context of development, because it is not an end in itself. For instance, the white people and local government expects municipalities to rebuild and reconstruct communities. Budget only becomes a, a tool and an instrument that we can use towards that bigger strategic uh, goal. Obviously section 152 of the Constitution is very clear as far as what the goals of local government are. Sections 153 and 154 emphasize the importance of intergovernmental relations in pursuit of the section 152 objectives. And it is important, and I want to quote from, it is important that we pay attention specifically to local government, and I want to add why. In the book recently published by Mills and Obasanjo, the former president of Nigeria, they say, cities inhabit the space where implementation occurs where the policy rubber has to hit the road, where policymakers come face to face with society's problems. Although the role of municipal actors is frequently overlooked, their direct influence is often greater than that of presidents, close quote. Another author says, local government is the only context of the everyday lives and the only level of government that has constant impact on the physical and social environment within which humans live. The last one then says, the problems of the bottom billion for whom poverty and high mortality can only be resolved with the necessity to reconstruct life from below. And I do think that in 1994, when the offers, of perhaps 1996 when we adopted the new constitution, and we moved the local government from being a function of provincial government to being a sphere on its own, is because we understood the big yet complex development work that local government had to do. But the question that we then had to ask in this context, Chair and colleagues, for instance, if you look at our allocation, our uh, Division of Revenue Act, if I'm not mistaken, I think to date, we continue to allocate just less than 10% to local government sphere. Of course, uh, that compared to a number of African states, I think we are doing better off as a country. But given the fact that we are saying that local government is totally like a function of provincial government, let alone the debate and the politics around what should be the role of COPTA. Do we think, as a starting point, that the allocation that we give to local government, given its strategic role in development, is sufficient? This is the question which I'm posing uh, to ourselves as, as legislators, and, I, and at the same time proposing that I do think that we need to rethink The approach of uh, budget allocation. Now, is the MFMA enabler or disabler? There's one one scholar in South Africa who has dedicated his time on doing a lot of research around MFMA. Uh, Obviously, the purpose is very clear, uh, which is the establishment of sound and sustainable management of financial affairs. There cannot be a dispute about that. But importantly, this scholar has done something that many of us perhaps have not had time to do. He says that in his view based on his empirical research. MFMA is the bulkiest piece of legislation with 180 sections comprising over 1,000 provisions. Now, the question that I want to, to suggest, and I've actually questioned this in my past life regarding the IDP, integrated Development Planning. At, don't we think that sophistication may be the best method, I mean, simplicity may be the best approach to sophistication? Why do we need to produce bulk documents that, in many instances, are not user-friendly? I'm sure that the president of Sarga is going to complain about local government being over over-regulated, overregulated, let alone the fact that in the sheer volume style and scope of MFMA has, on its own, has also found to be problematic in as far as fulfillment of constitutional mandate is, is, is concerned. If you look at section 21, paragraph 2b of the MFMA, uh, which speaks about uh, the importance of aligning the budget approach to fiscal and macroeconomic policy at national level. The question that must then arise is the extent to which we think that allows or suffocates uh, innovation on the part of local councils in as far as development really is concerned. Uh, of course, South Africa and India may be different countries altogether. But if you pay particular attention to what has happened to the state of Kerala in India, the extent to which there are some elements of independence or autonomy in as far as budgeting and planning is concerned, over the years, the state of Kerala has been performing far much better in as far as GDP and development is concerned over the, over, over the national government. The last part which I think parliament also needs to take care of and confront moving forward is. IDP becomes the source of the budget. In many instances, IDP representatives forums are just a tick-box exercise. You've got, you do have certain departments which are bound to attend this and commit not only projects that they will do, but resources where possible. And this does not happen. And I do think that partly this is where the Treasury Journal will speak about unfunded budget. And indeed, in many instances, this creates problems. To try to close, just to, to share with you what the people I interviewed when I was doing my own study felt about MFMA. And interestingly, the MFMA was not even one of the questions that I posed when I was doing my, my own PhD. But they had the following to say. And this was not this was not uh, too long ago, it was just around 2018. The one respondent said that MFMA promotes compliance over developmental work. The second respondent indicated that development needed to be pursued within specific parameters. I should have pointed out there were mixed feelings. Another one felt that state state jacket tools had adverse impact on, on, on municipality because people worry more about compliance than other things. Interestingly, various senior government officials indicated that during consolidation phase, municipalities had to compile a total of annually. Which placed a huge burden on municipalities. So we can only assume or guess what could have been the impact on smaller municipalities whose skills and capacity are stretched. And then Auditor General made a comment about this concept that we, we, we that are contained in the MFMA and the PFMA. And one of the one of the respondents said that there's often a general lack of understanding of the public about terms such as unauthorized, irregular and wasteful and fruitless expenditure which create panic in municipalities because once they are mentioned, society often tends to think that uh, they mean corruption. Another respondent said that by the time councillors begin to have minimal understanding of legislation, time is no longer ample for them to to concentrate on the implementation of policies. This is just some of the brief responses that very high ranking senior officials that I interviewed a few years back said about MFME, obviously as we can tell, the reactions were mixed, but it is important to note that uh, there are some municipal managers, CFOs, mayors, speakers who do not, who are not of the view that MFMA is an enabler. They are of the view that, if anything, MFMA frustrates them from 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 doing their work. Uh, therefore, what do we need to do uh, to address uh, these problems? I will refer members, honourable members, to what the section 44, paragraph four of the constitution says, and I think I will leave it open for your own interpretations. It says that when the parliament does its own work, it must do its own work bound only by the constitution and nothing else. And I'm raising this deliberately because I do think that we are at a point where we know what the problems are. Before the National Development Plan, there was the domestic report. You go to local government. there have been so many reports from the time of Minister Mufumadi up until, if my memory serves you well, until uh, min, min, Minister Gordon. We do know what the problems. Are. Indeed, yesterday, the deputy minister did say that politics is a problem. Uh, capacity is a problem. How do we navigate around these things? Part of the issues which I think have been left hanging from about 2007, there was a talk about rethinking. Uh, our system of local government. I'm not sure what happened to that debate. I'm of the view, for instance, that part of what parliament needs to uh, to talk about, uh, for instance, in as far as structures Act is concerned, is the extent to which we think there is a necessity for a number of full-time councillors in local municipalities, which in many instances, by the way, create sorts of conflicts uh, in one municipality, there's a conflict, tough contestation between the mayor and the speaker and other municipalities. The mayor is fighting with members of the committees, committee, etc. Cetera, et cetera, All these things, at the end of the day, they not only create gaps in as far as efficiency is concerned in the systems. But these positions also need to be funded. But what is the in impact of these positions in as far as education and verification is concerned. I don't think that any of us can speak with confidence. If, for instance, you go to a medium-sized municipality, and let us take much, for instance, I think there's what, about 10 MMCs, uh, with one with one MMC having at least, on average, a directory according to him or her. Do we need this, do we need this kind of, uh, of big structures in local government, in closing? I think the data that I collected between two thousand and four and twenty fourteen, in as far as division of the division of revenues concerned, excluding ring ring ringfenced funds, we had national treasury had uh, had transferred no less than two hundred ninety two million to local government, which should have gone into development, and we do know sitting here today that. As much as there's a provision that uh, salaries have to be about 30, 35 percent, last time I checked, we do know that this money has not gone into development, into, into basic services, into infrastructure projects. It has gone into consumption. Now, the question that the parliament needs to ask, taking you back as I close, we know how the preamble of the constitution says. We know how does the purpose of, established, of what the establishment of the three spheres of government are concerned. We know what should be the role of local government. With all this experience that we have gained, I am of the view that parliament is the right structure informed by our our goal of wanting to build a developmental state to start to ask these difficult questions and say, what should be the future going forward? And I do think that moving forward, we cannot do things as we have been doing. Thank you very much. Thank
0: you very much, Dr. Mohale. We will now uh, go to the President of uh, South African Local Government Association, Ms. Tembi Nkadiming. Over to you, Honorable
2: Nkadiming. Uh,
12: let me thank you, uh, uh, Deputy Chairperson of the National uh, House of uh, NCOP, Honorable Ministers, uh, Deputy Ministers, uh, Mrs. present, uh, members of the NCOP, the AG. Um, Salga, NEC members who are present, members of the academia and the members of the public service. Let me just start by appreciating the honor to address uh, yourselves in this budget and fiscal oversight work for given input on behalf of the South African Local Government Association. Of course, with a specific focus on the Municipal Finance Management Act and the role of parliament, in trying to pursue its duties with regard to the oversight of our budget. Honorable Chair, let me also reflect on the great strides as I appreciate your participation and contribution to our local government. We have collectively achieved democratically elected government, which, was, which has been successful in executing the ambitious projects of state formation and building. To this end, and led by your good selves, Through the Constitution of of South Africa, a white paper on local government in 1998 was published and subsequently introduced a series of laws, policies, and support programs to direct the establishment of local government as a distinct, interrelated, and independent sphere of government. Great progress has also been achieved post this establishment. The legislation amongst itself as a governing system and processes of local government. It includes the Demarcation Act of 98, the Municipal Structures Act, which deals with the Structures and the Systems Act of uh, 2000. And of course, the MFMA, as I've articulated earlier, of 2003. On the 5th of December, Honorable Chair, South Africa celebrated 20 years of democratic local government. It is Salga's view that the government, and in particular, our local government's sphere has undergone rapid transition and transformation over the last 20 years. So there can be no doubt, Chair, that local government has had a profound impact in the lives of ordinary South Africans in expanding the provision of services to our people, while it is true, and we accept as well, that a number of serious and complex challenges still persist in local municipalities. By and large, local government has delivered on top of those challenges, quality services and a better life for a majority of our people. And this is confirmed officially uh, by our the latest non-financial uh, census on municipalities, which was released by the Statistician General on the 31st of March 2021. It confirms that the number of households receiving services from municipalities has increased between 2017 and 2019. So it is within this context that we call, we welcome this valuable initiative by the NCOP of engaging highly esteemed stakeholders from public service and the academia in particular on ensuring accountability in the public expenditure through effective parliamentary financial oversight and accountability. As per the theme of this gathering, I would like to kickstart the discussions by touching on some of the vexing issues which we as Salga believe should be debated and thoroughly reflected upon. By way of introduction on this matters, chair, let me cite that local government has come under a lot a lot of scrutiny recently, perhaps necessarily so, so, as it is the most visible sphere and closest to the people. Furthermore, our system of wall-to-wall municipalities means that all development work happens within a ward and in a municipality. So in one way or the other, almost all services our people get or do not get from government find the most concrete expression at the municipal level. Despite its pivotal role, local government was the last sphere to be considered and conceptualized during the negotiation period. And as such, the development of its policies, systems, practices, and funding has tended to lag behind the other two spheres. This is most aptly demonstrated by the still continuing debate. I mean we are still holding that debate ourselves today on the powers and functions of municipalities, the vertical allocation of finances from the fiscals and the continuing refinement of systems and policies which affect this sphere. So over the past 20 years various policies, legislative and regulatory and support program measures have been put brought about to stabilize local government and to give it its necessary impetus to operate optimally. Among these support measures, we all know them very well. These various interventions, which all seem to have not yielded the intended results. For example, our municipal support program, project viability, project consolidate, local government turnaround strategy, and the current back to basics which we are utilizing to enhance the delivery of municipalities. Now, the biggest question, or in summary, I can say, there has been nine policy directives in local government since its inception. So the biggest question today should be, where to? What next? And how do we bring about stability, capacity, institutional resilience, good governance, better resourcing, and improved service delivery? Of course, I had not counted the current policy directive which is the district development model as adopted by president ramaphosa in dealing with the current state of local government and the challenges attended to consideration has to be given to political institutional and the financial aspects to create a package instead of wanting to deal with them in isolation and i think dr mwale has already showcased a bit of some from his study Allow me also to summarize some of the issues that require a detail, and that have been raised during the local government week of December 2020. Uh, With regard to leadership and oversight, the observation of the AG 2018-19 municipal audit outcome confirmed that mayors can only provide 25% of uh, observation and oversight. Municipal council provides 26%. And the municipal public accounts committees, shortly called MPEX, provides 27%. Independent assurance and oversight at municipal levels. With the exception of the attempts made by the opposition parties in council, there's very little oversight played by mayors over what happens in municipal administration. And similarly, there's very little oversight by municipal council over the mayor and mayoral committees or executive committees. Whereas almost all municipalities have established MPEGs, they are in most instances undercapacitated. Mm -hmm. Under-resourced, junior councillors are deployed to lead them, and most of their oversight recommendations have no binding effect, as we all know, with very little to no follow-through or execution. So MPEGs don't carry the weight of Scopa. Hence, they have not been able to refer their findings to investigative agencies, table forensic reports, or hold executive leadership of a municipality accountable. So by and large, they tended to be more partisan and have lost their strategic intent and significance. We propose that as Parliament was processing the amendments of the Structures Act, that they legislate the role of MPEC. The political assurance providers must play it a more active role in ensuring that preventative controls are implemented. In particular, the legislative process should be fast-tracked to formalize the role of MPEGs so that they can play an effective oversight role in municipal councils. With regard to consequence management, it is our observation that one of the key findings of the Auditor General over the past years have been that cases of violations and transgression is in municipalities are not pursued, and those responsible are not sufficiently held accountable. While the amendment act, or audit act seeks to remedy some elements of this, the focus is mainly on individuals, neglecting the system, systemic issues that may pervade the uh, rather pervade the entire municipality in ensuring that it is able to achieve this. Whereas Salga, we have done a bit of some work towards the consequence and accountability framework. We are proposing that this framework or a consequence management framework that will focus on both individual action and institutional dimensions of poor management at local level should be developed without creating a duplication of what the auditor general has already uh, proposed. This framework could, for example, entail elements such as the grading of municipalities based on the performance levels and the awarding of salary increases and and bonuses based on the overall institutional performance. I mean, you can't have a a, a bonus with a municipality which has got a disclaimer, for example. And these elements will cover both political leadership and administration and could be based on agreed upon performance indices emanating from the uh, uh, auditor general uh, outcomes states SA municipal non-financial reports and other such municipal performance rating instruments could be used to ensure that we create the performance uh, 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 baseline at the beginning, measure it at the end, and then offer a bonus when necessary. As it relates to cost of reforms, various reforms have been brought about in the past couple of years to improve the local government sector. The most recent of this has been the introduction of MSCOA, which is the Municipal Standard Chart of Accounts by National Treasurer. A couple of other regulations and reforms are in the pipeline, for example, from DPSA. Most of these reforms are often not properly costed, nor are municipalities given sufficient technical, personnel, and financial resources to execute them. This tends to cause a huge financial and compliance burden on municipalities and does not need to be resolved urgently. And Dr. Mohale has raised some of these issues on my behalf. I will no longer complain about policies and, 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 and legislations that are brought on a day-to-day in municipalities. As it relates, Chair, to technical matters, the White Paper on Local Government intended a developmental role for local government. The intended role was accompanied by certain policy assumptions, including the focus of the new local government system and how the system will be resourced and supported? Of course, towards these 20 years of democratic local government, the following questions should be answered. Do the assumptions still hold? Is the current two-tier system as prescribed by the Municipal Structures Act still relevant and necessary? What is to be done with one-third dysfunctional and unviable municipalities? Where next with the demarcation instrument? It is for this reason that this budget forum that was convened on the 11th of December, 2020, resolved a number of issues as we seek to set the municipal sector on a path of sustainability to realize its constitutional mandate. The first phase of the budget Lihuta addressed amongst other matters below, which will address issues that Saga has been raising as follows. Review of the vertical allocation of resources, Chair, We hold this view as salga. Within the context of the past 20 years, financial resources available to municipalities have fallen short of the demands on municipal services and infrastructure delivery needs, and this has been worsening over time. This is further complicated by the current state of the economy, especially the limited tax revenue, retracted economic growth, and rising debt level. Although local government is responsible for almost 46% of the constitutional functions, local government still gets around 9.1% as a sphere from the national fiscal. And we have said this repeatedly. The current local government equitable share formula based on a very loose assumption of cost of providing services at a horizontal level affects the vertical distribution to such an extent that local government is completely underfunded for primarily basic services, but also other components. In many instances, cost of providing basic services exceeds the equitable share based in the following key factors. The topography, Mm -hmm. uh, you find the difference between municipalities which are in a flat, rolling or a mountainous terrain. Obviously, constructing a road in various municipalities, even if it could be for the same kilometers, the cost could be different in a mountainous terrain versus a flat terrain, for example. Location between a coastal and an inland municipality, distance from economic sector centers, development status referring to number of settlements and densities, loss of the economy of scale. It will further be noted that in some instances, consumption of indigenous exceeds basic services, particularly in instances of yard connections. As such, the budget fora held on the 11th of December 2020 resolved to review and relook at the local government equitable share formula towards the provision of free basic services. And National Treasury is to lead this particular work stream. With regard to dealing with municipal financial health challenges, I will revert back to what the AG said. In 2018-2019 audit outcomes and confirmed that the financial statements show increasing indicators of a collapse in local government finances. The AG further confirmed the financial woes of local government and also weighed heavily on municipal creditors. As it relates to debt owed to municipalities, it is well known that the average 59% of municipal debtors are not recoverable. In, mm. in 55 municipalities, more than 80% cannot be recovered. A debt allocation at 99 municipalities was more than 90 days. So as at December 2020, the debt owed to municipalities is in excess of 230 billion and is classified as follows. And this, uh, honorable members, I will request you to note the increase as we uh, debate uh, continuously in such forms of forest. To date, the state, contrary to the 10 billion, Uh, roundabout we had in the past financial years, we're now sitting at around 20.7 billion, uh, 9%, which is to the state. Commercial is at around 39 billion, which makes about 16%, 16 16.9, actually close to 17% of the overall 230 billion of the debt. And the household debt sitting stubbornly at 72.2%, which is equal to the value of almost 166 billion. In light of these realities, we are tabling the following for considerations. Put together measures to write off the ever-increasing household debts to municipalities, including the introduction of the national bill for the writing off of this household debt in exchange of installation of prepaid meters and electricity meters. I emphasize this because we are not for the promotion of writing off of debt without putting measures which will keep the, the recurrence of the debt in that particular household. you write-off systems are put in place to put smart meters, both water and electron, electricity meters, to ensure that we those municipalities who have been assisted with write-offs do not return. But we also improve the revenue collection instrument through measures such as the Amendment of the Tax Administration Act. So before SARS pays a tax refund, they first check if the particular taxpayer does not have monies to, to his or her municipality where he or she resides. So if the taxpayer owes a municipality, the amount due to the municipality must be paid first by SARS to, before a refund is deposited into the account of uh, the return hold. Amendment, or amend rather, Schedule 2 and 10 of the Municipal Systems Act so that it is not only municipal councillors and employees who may not be in arrears with their municipalities for a period more than three months. This requirement should then be extended to all state employees, elected and appointed representatives in all the spheres of government, including state-owned enterprises and um, a state-owned entities. Establish a district revenue collection agency. This will be in line with the DDM, which assists us in ensuring that there are better collection efficiencies and will free up a lot of municipal personnel time to focus on more pressing service delivery issues. And lastly, to amend the procurement regulations to make it compulsory for any potential service provider to produce municipal service rates compliance certificate before they are awarded a government contract or during the contracting period. It's a said state that it is, the country only uh, requires a tax compliance certificate from a service provider anywhere else in a country to even be contracted by government, but it can owe one of its fears of government. But there is no compliance uh, uh, with regard to municipal rates, uh, certificates, payment, which is compulsory, particularly to people who want to trade with the state. We may want to resolve the constitutional issues relating to electricity rec- uh, reticulation, deal with the issue of resolving municipal debts to ESCOM, which are also increasing, but we may also want to look at the situation which has been worsened by the current COVID-19 impact. Honorable Deputy Chair, as it relates to support and monitoring of municipalities, we have observed at Salka that in a number of cases, these interventions have been ineffective and section 139 has been invoked in a haphazard manner. And as such, we have proposed a new approach to strengthen support and monitoring of municipalities. We think we may have to allow the use of the current reporting mechanisms to introduce early warning systems for municipalities. This will ensure that the Section 71 and 72 reports are rather meaningful and useful in terms of enhancing support. These early warning systems will be placed will place a municipality in a position to conduct ongoing self-assessment. Identify performance and self correct, I mean, rather underperformance and self correct, identify targeted support and contract for such support. With regard to the devolution of powers and functions and unfunded mandate, our view as SALGA is that the National Development Plan indicates that the trend with powers and functions in South Africa has been a greater differentiation in the treatment of municipalities. The constitution itself allows for differentiation in the assignment of powers and functions to municipalities through the distinction between local and metropolitan municipalities. There's also been a differentiation in the powers assigned to local and district municipalities. For example, the provision of park infrastructure and the network services such as water and sanitation. The following has been a concern to Saga for the last past 20 years with regard to the democratic local government systems. So there's a lack of clarity on the current allocation of powers and functions, in which is problematic and it hinders service delivery. For quite some time now, there's been much a debate about the functionality and the effectiveness of the entire system. In particular, the role and place of district municipalities vis-a-vis local municipalities have been questioned because their functioning has been fraught. Um, but mindful to the new dis- district development approach, it should also be noted that municipalities uh, perform functions on behalf of provinces and bears the significant costs for the delivery of such services. And this is partially what causes un- unfunded and underfunded mandate as also confirmed by the financial and the fiscal commission's technical report so as salga we suggest the following to this uh, to the local government week but also to this fora as well the revision of existing powers and functions is imperative towards creating an ideal functionality model transfers for assigned functions should not be dependent on the minister or MEC, the budget forum resolved resolve that the critical review of powers and functions linked to fiscal viability is urgently required and the work in the powers and function work stream will assist and culture is a lead in this regard. The NCOP through deliberations of the division of revenue bill may ensure that the resource allocation to local government are aligned to its constitutional obligation and the developmental mandate. Uh, but also, Chair, we may also want to further strengthen the oversight rule by ensuring the relevant executives exercise their responsibility to oversee uh, the implementation of the MFMA and monitoring interventions undertaken to extract accountability, invoking Section 214 in an event that there is a pers- persistent breach of the MFMA. The committee can also intervene when funds to municipalities in terms of MFMA Section 39 have been stopped due to persistent breach of the MFMA by summoning the mayors to the NCOP to account. The NCOP can also assist in their oversight role in all municipalities that have unfunded budget, not spending their grants, and have been listed as as being under financial distress by monitoring the interventions implemented by National Treasury to ensure compliance. The NCOP can further strengthen It's oversight by uh, uh, oversight role during park tariff setting by ensuring that the sustainability aspects are balanced against the socioeconomic considerations and affordability by municipalities and consequently household. The cost escalations of park services by and large threaten the provision of these services. As I conclude, Chair, whereas I have highlighted some of the key issues, it is by no means exhaustive it is our expectation that the outcome of this two day workshop will bring about solutions in terms of strengthening the role of parliament in exercising oversight to hold executive accountable as we reflect on the past 20 years of a democratically elected local government thank you very much honorable chair for the opportunity given to salga to share its views with the ncop we highly appreciate it
0: thank you very much uh- Honorable President of SALGA, we, honorable members, I know that the program has been quite exhausting, but can we please just continue and indicate whether we want to engage with the, with the uh, presentations as presented by the two uh, panelists. Can we get an indication? Can we get an indication? Honorable members, am I audible?
13: Very audible, deputy chair.
0: I I, I, I have to ask that because I don't uh, see a, a, a response. So Honorable Dodobu, you may continue in the meantime whilst other members will indicate. You
11: know, compared to a chair, I've, I've got a new gadget
2: here, it's troubling me. Yes,
0: it's fine. It will be the rider on Ryder, Honourable, and then
10: Ntetwa. Uh, Sir, thank you very much. Uh, once more, uh, the, the two presentations are, are welcome, uh, very informative, and they indeed go deeper in respect of highlighting what are the issues and challenges Uh, facing local government. I think this is quite uh, illuminating. Just two points, uh, Honorable Chair. Firstly, to the President of SALGA. Parliament has passed the Municipal Structures Amendment Act which contains the very same issue that you are raising of the establishment of the Municipal Public Accounts Committee. Uh, in all municipalities which means that as from now on all municipalities are obliged to ensure that these bodies are in place to can hold the executive accountable and ensure that it deals with all the issues pertaining to accountability but but be that as it may this is one of the important instruments in my view that is in place and as the debate has have unfolded, it is quite clear that other instruments, other initiatives and all of that have been put in place. Like for example, the M score, uh, the issue of the disciplinary boards at municipal level. For me, as this debate is ensuing, I'm asking myself a question. The question is because this question is predicated on the the premise that uh, 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 there is a mismatch, or a dichotomy between policy implementation, uh, policy policy formulation and policy implementation. We do not practice what we preach. We do not implement and enforce adequately the systems and the structures uh, that are in place. Now that begs to ask a question, are we not punching uh, above our weights when we make all uh, these laws and policies because clearly what is lacking out of all of this is how they are carried out, how they are implemented, and then therefore there is improvement in terms of what is happening at the municipal level. For me, that is very, very much key. And then looking at the advent of our democratic dispensation, especially in terms of local government, much has been realized, but the trend is there is a deteriorating, whether it is of accountability, it is of consequence management. It is of the political situation. It's, because, it's all because of service delivery. There seem to be some deterioration that, in my view, I think as practitioners, as politicians, and everybody else, we must think very, very hard and say, what is it that can be done to ameliorate this situation? What is it that can be done to ensure that we extricate uh, local government from the morass that it, that it finds itself? For me, uh, president of SALGA and, 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 and the doctor, uh, it's, clear, it's clear that we need to do a rethinking about how we how we develop our own policies on how we make our laws, because at the time that we do so, we must bear in mind that they must be implemented and therefore we need to ensure that we have the necessary capacity to ensure that all of these are implemented. And for me, that is what is lacking at the moment, uh, Honourable Deputy Chairperson, I thought that I must make that contribution and maybe invite the views of the presenters on how, how we should take the process, with
14: this particular process forward.
15: Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Honourable
14: Dodovo, Honourable Ryder. Thank you very much, Chair President, and thank you to the presenters. Uh, quick issue, I'm going to keep it fairly short, although I think both questions are quite uh, quite complex to answer. The first one relates a little bit to what uh, Honourable Dudovu was saying, and that uh, I recently posed a question to the Finance Minister about the implementation of MSCOA. Um, and the deadline has passed several years ago, and yet we're finding that the, the levels of compliance are still far from where they need to be in order for MSCOA to really start working. So I'd like to just hear Selga's inputs on on how the rollout of, of EMSCOA has happened to date and whether they've seen benefits from their side or has the, has the only benefit been to Treasury um, and, and, and little benefit to municipalities. The second question I have, Deputy Chairperson, relates to uh, some of the comments that the Salga ch- uh, Chair uh, put forward about the, um, the, the state of debt in municipalities. Now, municipalities obviously have large debts outstanding to them. uh, And a lot of that has resulted in large debt owing to water boards and to Eskimo. And I was wondering what the proposals are in terms of dealing with those legacy debts, which are now often four, five, six times what the current utilization is, in order to make sure that 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 municipalities can run uh, I mean their balance sheets are mostly insolvent anyway, but how can they run effectively. Um, What are the proposals in terms of dealing with that legacy debt, taking in mind as well that ESCOM needs to protect its balance sheet um, and cannot simply write off all that uh, legacy debt that's owed to it. Thank you, Deputy Chair. Thank
0: you,
11: Honorable Rider, Honorable Mitetua. No, thanks, uh, Chair. Deputy Chair. Mine is uh, to the President of Salka. President, I don't think the issue of section 139C is really a a problem. The issue is about section 139B where Salka must play a meaningful and a major role. You allow that part to, to collapse and then at a later stage when NCOP starts to intervene under section 139C, then we begin to get a lot of uh, confrontation under that section. And remember, we don't just get into those levels. The other level is that uh, we felt that Salka sometimes is not monitoring properly some of this municipality because you've got all your system which are correct. Even in terms of your finance, Salka is doing the best. But when you come to your entities or on your municipality, that's where a major problem is. For me, is your issue of the implementation and Salka play a meaningful role in assisting, especially municipalities, because you do have the reports and the indicators shows you as to which direction each municipality is taking before it get to section 139c thank you very much chair thank you honorable tata honorable
2: kiva
15: thank you chairperson uh, and good afternoon to all the members uh, present uh, let me also appreciate uh, the presentation by the two presenters uh, i will i will focus mainly in an area which I don't see coming out and which is very critical for us to be seen to be doing something and turning around our country into a transformed society. When it comes to the rural space, seeing that the majority of the provinces in our country and municipalities by extension are predominantly rural. Is there no way that um, we can look at a very constructive and a progressive role that could be played by the institution of traditional leadership, particularly the traditional councils. I know, for instance, uh, President Madam President of Salga, that uh, many traditional leaders are represented at a level of council uh, in, in areas where the councils, uh, they are traditional authorities, traditional leaders are represented. But I want to see if is there really a dynamic role uh, that they play uh, working closely with the municipalities. Because I don't see it coming out. And I'm saying this because not much has happened in the rural space in terms of trying to turn our villages into smart villages. In the same line as we, we strive to make our cities smart cities and towns smart towns. I think that should trickle down to a village level to ensure that even our villages are are, are, are placed on the same trajectory so that we can have tarred uh, roads in rural areas and ensure that water does not only end uh, on the street, but it it actually goes into uh, the homesteads of our people. And I, I think this is very key because if we don't focus on that, then it would seem like we have simply inherited a system um, which we got, and then just continued with that trajectory of focusing mainly in the town centers. And yet the villages are very key and are a cornerstone of who we are as the natives of of the country. And, and, And therefore, for me, it will be good because I see many people have started investing in very beautiful homes, in the rural spaces, but the bulk services are nowhere to be found. And and for me, that is unstrategic because in order for us to be a really a complete African country, it is because of the antiquity and that uniqueness, which is found in that architecture in the rural space. And therefore it is important that when we articulate these policies and the policy measures, including the role of oversight, we must not just overlook the traditional authorities and the traditional councils because they represent somewhat, you know, pre-colonial African structures of our own custodianship in so far as heritage and culture and so on. So it's important that uh, we, we, we link up with those structures so that our role does not just end before it reaches the ordinary people in a rural village. I emphasize then the point that there's a role for the institution of traditional leadership in what uh, municipalities are expected to do, in what, even the oversight of the lawmakers where we are sitting. We must go and actually touch uh, the toiling masses on the ground. So, Chairperson, it would be great if I can hear from the good doctor, as well as the president in particular, because she comes from a rural province herself and therefore she would be familiar with the matters that I'm raising. But I'm sort of taken aback that nothing is coming and being mainstreamed in the presentations that are, are being afforded to us. So I would leave it at that, Chair. thanks for the opportunity.
0: Thank you very much. Honorable members, we are seriously struggling now with the issue of time. So I hope it will be sufficient if we grant each of the two but uh, panelists, six minutes each to respond to the issues that have been raised, because some of the issues is a repetition. <clears throat> so I think you can just take the, the issues that have really never came up before, so that we respond to that. Over to you. Oh Muslim Kadimang. it depends who of you will be the first one to respond. <laughs>
2: Uh, the, the picture, let me let me go and then the president will close uh,
8: let, let me start with um the, the the last issue that is raised regarding regarding rural areas uh, and actually I, I had wanted to raise this and then i forgot uh, given the constraints of time <clears throat> uh, let, let, let let me in fact share with numbers what one of uh, the colleagues from the government school of, I mean, school of Government once said, I think two years back, when Salga had a, an event in Durban in which they were launching a book. And there was a colleague who said, since it, it comes across as if we are not sure as a country what we want to do with rural areas, we might as well want to consider... Uh, take, I mean, busing everyone out of the rural areas to urban areas because we, it seems like as a country we don't have a plan. Of course, that was a joke. But I think it spoke to the very issue which I wanted to, to raise and which in part also affects the so-called uh, culture of the municipalities that, uh, that are not viable, especially financially speaking. But I do think that members of NCOP, especially since you represent the interests of provinces, We need to appreciate the fact that unless the government in its entirety begins to have a deliberate approach uh, in how we drive development across the board instead of doing what we have been doing, which in all honesty was to perpetuate uh, the pre-1994 skewed development planning Will never, we'll, we'll never go far. I've argued I, I this in many platforms that what we have as we know it today in the country and the world over is not a natural phenomenon. It was deliberately designed by people who had a particular subjective interest. Now, if our subjective interest as an emergent nation is to rebuild communities, inevitably, we cannot continue to send more resources in already developed spaces. The fact that our funding index continues to prioritize population over service delivery backlog and therefore proudly for the, for the lack of a better word, but this is what comes from the trade. Preparing our people and our nation for urbanization the neglect of the development that must take place in other areas in the country. I don't think that that is one of the serious lines of our democracy. And I would humbly propose that I don't think that parliaments need to have a debate around that. I often say that it cannot be that as a, as a young boy having grown up in the free state, I come to Beben for opportunities to study. Once I've got my qualification, I do not feel a need to go back home to impart my knowledge and skills precisely because I've been exposed to, to opportunities that are non-existent back at home, and this is the problem. For instance, that would, that would also I mean would also have in as far as attraction of skills is concerned, because if you go to a credible or qualifying people and say go work somewhere in uh, uh, in Lachtenberg, and you say that person must live. Uh, <coughs> Rich has been to work in Lachtenbeck. I think it would take somebody who is very disparate for employment to do that. Otherwise, nobody would be willing to do that. And this is a fault of the entirety of government. I want to put it as, as, as is. And second, okay. part of the issues which I suggested, and whether it's Salga that must lead the debate, but I don't know that, and I don't want to speak on behalf of municipal Board. But one of the issues which we have problematized and which affects the viability of municipalities and, and the report is the fact that as a country we have not really dealt with the question of the architecture of local government. The president of Salga raised the this thing that perhaps we need to revisit uh, the 2 entire system of local government. It, it, it's one of the issues, but beyond that, it was a good idea perhaps then to introduce the idea of a wall-to-wall system. Does it work? And we have raised this precisely because there are certain issues that will be raised and understandably or is the lack of understanding be attributed to the decisions of the demarcation board. But I, in my personal capacity, have argued. We can demarcate for as long as you like, for as many times as we like. If we do not mobilize resources, and I hope that this is what the district development model seeks to do. If you do not mobilize resources to develop underdeveloped areas, demarcation will not address it will not address efficiency issues. And I do think that, as Honorable Dodovu says, that we do need to rethink our policy making. Part of the issues which I think we need to, to revisit and reconsider, throwing from our 27 years of democracy, throwing from the experiences that we have had in the past 20 years of a developmental local government. Certainly there are certain assumptions which can be defended and we think that they are still intact, but certain decisions I mean, certain assumptions, which might have been appropriate at the time, I, don't, I do not think they still hold. And it is important that this conversation must take, space, uh, must take place between and amongst all of us. It cannot be entrusted with one just one body to say, uh, demarcation board or SALGA, or solve this problem. I do think that we do need to solve this problem. And my concluding uh, remark, uh, perhaps before then briefly, Interestingly, uh, I did my master's study on section 139 of the constitution, which uh, gets two municipalities, of course, to a very small sample, but I don't think that generic principles do apply. Again, irrespective of whether section 139 or section 139C, for as long as uh, you see that we need to separate between the two issues, there will be structural issues in which even if you got the best administrator in the country, that person may solve those issues. And this, this largely have to do with how we redistribute the resources to address the most vulnerable areas in our people's society. Unless we have done that, a number of municipalities will structurally continue to, uh, to bear the brand of what happened before 1994. But there are also systematic issues as well, uh, which amongst others includes what happens outside governance platforms, but who told do what happens in politics and, and etc. Exactly. For as long as those issues continue to obtain and we do not have creative and innovative ways in how we minimize the impact on proper governance ensuring that accountability is not compromised, you can intervene in a municipality for as, for as many times as we can. We have these cases in you North know, West, in Pumalanga Free State. If you look at the list from Cogta, a number of municipalities that have been placed under, under administration repeatedly come from these provinces, precisely because there are system issues which have not been resolved. So section 139 in itself is not panacea. It, it, it is dependent, it's, it, it's, its outcomes are dependent on, on the issues that might be solved at cross-foot level. I don't think my party short is that local government is strategically positioned to take an important work of development in post apartheid South Africa. But as President of Salka has said, as I've suggested, I do think that, that parliaments need to have a debate regarding the adequacy of funding of local government. Yes, there are all other problems that we know. One reality which I do think that we must not run away from is that I do not, I personally do not think that our uh, local government is adequately funded. And part of the reason is because there are other big policy issues which the countries are whether The extent to which the land provinces remain relevant or whether they, indeed we do, we do think that we need uh, provinces uh, I mean, uh, by the way. Uh, and I do think that that debate needs to happen. Uh, and I hope that it does not take another 20 years before it is resolved. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Doc. We will now uh, go to the president of SAUGA, Honorable uh, Meng.
12: Thank I, you very much.
0: Doc, Doc took about seven and a half minutes, so it means that
2: mm-hmm.
12: you are instantly within the time. Not okay. at all, I will not, because I'm not going to repeat uh, and emphasize what Dr. Mohale has already covered. I honestly am going to touch on just two, three areas which Honorable Members raised, but he has not responded to them. Honorable Ryder raised an issue of NSCOA in terms of does it assist uh, enhancement uh, for municipalities or is just a compliance issue? Does it assist National treasure? There are two issues uh, Honorable Ryder. There. The deadline is passed. The reason why some municipalities are unable to to implement and ensure that the system is up and running is a cost which is attached to the implementation of MSCORE itself. Uh, and and this is what we have raised on 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 a number of, of times. It does assist national treasury in terms of budgeting, compliance matters, and in terms of monitoring uh, with regard to reconciliations of budgets and also reporting. Uh, back on the system in terms of the finances and the tracking of municipalities. But we may also have to look as to whether is it really necessary for a municipality as small with 11 councillors in a, a, a Northern Cape as it is with 236 biggest structure and the biggest budget in the city of Johannesburg, for example. And I think these are the difficulties that municipalities face when we introduce issues which need to be dealt with and across the standard, across all the 257 municipalities without necessarily looking into the need. We may want to go one by one, why has the municipality not uh, complied with regard to M score? And you will find that the reasoning are more than a a issue of non-willingness to comply, but it's more about affordability to ensure the compliance to those matters. I've spoken at length on a level rider with regards to what we are suggesting on how to deal with the debt besides the smart meter. But the answer is ensuring municipalities are able to develop the infrastructure in an economic and uh, 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 inciting way that promotes people to come to those areas and the, the revenue of the municipalities will come. A debt is one thing, uh, but you, you are correct in structuring your question around the legacy dates. For example, consolidation of municipalities, when they were formed, took the old debt, which was coming even from the previous dispensation. A, a township in in, in 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 Soweto, a township in, in Springs will be trapped into the new Eguru Lane, which makes a, a new metro in the area of, for example, the then uh, uh, east part of Gauteng. Why did we do that? Why would it take us 20 years to talk about one and the same thing of dealing with the issues of ensuring that we assist those municipalities, but rather opt to pile uh, the debt and not look into it. But what are the measures that we have put ourselves as the house to assist municipalities for government to pay its debt? For example, a government department swiftly return its money and spend, but not pay a municipality where it is residing. So it is more of a legacy that issues, uh, 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 illegal connections, which makes municipalities struggle because of uh, systems and and unavailability of funds to deal with what we could be able to do. Section 139, I will not touch on it. I think, uh, Honorable, I mean, uh, Dr. Mwale spoke to it, but I spoke, uh, Honorable Nteto, with regard to monitoring and evaluation, and I said, uh, section 71 and 72 for example salka today does not receive section 71 report and section 72 so what happens national treasury and cocta writes a letter to salka and say municipality x has already is already in distress and is in a financial position can you assist us with its assessment we have placed it under Section 139, for example, in the December of 2019. We just received the letter. Uh, assessment has already been done. Uh, assistance with what SALGA could be able to do is there. But is it the role of SALGA? No, it's a role of court. But it's not a session where we would want to say this and that one is not doing this. It's a session where we are saying collectively we could be able to deal with issues. If there are areas where we need to enhance, allow us, we've been requesting that. Can we receive at our provincial office, the section 71 so that we will assist municipalities with regard to early warning systems, which I've also spoken to uh, today. I think the issues of revenue enhancement and the rural space, Dr. Muhale responded to them and let me not rehash them, Chair. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable President of SALGA. And thank you also to Dr. David Mahale. Thank you also, to, uh, because I am going to give over now to Honorable uh, Nguyenia that will be uh, presiding over
2: the rest of the, of, the, of the program. From my side, thank you very much for the opportunity. Unmute, unmute,
0: honorable linguini, unmute.
16: Okay. Thanks, deputy chair. Okay. Shall I light? Chairperson of the NSOP, Honorable Masondo, Deputy Chairperson of the NSOP, Honorable Lucas, Honorable Chairperson, Committee of the Oversight, Honorable Nyambi, Chief Whip of the NSOP, Honorable Muhai, Honorable Permanent and Special Delegate to the NSOP, Honorable President of the Salka and Local Government Representative, Honorable Nkadi Distinguished guests, Ladies and Gentlemen. The NSOP Workshop on Budget and Physical Oversight is in progress as, and is progressing very well. This is high level workshop, which will remain in the history book of the NSOP. As we are marking 24 years, since the nsop was established in 1997. nelson mandela once said when he addressed the nsop in 1998 he said it is therefore appropriate that the nsop should be the forum for exchange exchanging of views and this point in the annual parliamentary cycle we are indeed witnessing health exchange of views and discussion since we started this workshop yesterday honorable members without any further ado we are now moving to section five of the program whose topic for presentation is strengthening the nsop roles of effective budget and physical oversight and accountability i hope The speaker will shed light on Section 70 of the Constitution of the Republic, which empower the NCOP to make rules and order connecting its business with due regard to representatives, participating democracy, accountability, transparency, and public involvement. Honorable members, before I call the next speaker, it is important that I share with you his brief profile as it is a practice in this workshop. Advocate Modibeng Dibedi Eric Pindela is the Secretary to the National Council of Provinces. He started working in Parliament of Republic of South Africa in 2007 as the Undersecretary to the National Council of Provinces. He was appointed as Secretary to the NSOP with effect from the 1st June 2010. In January 2015 to November 2017, he was appointed as Acting Deputy Secretary secretary to Parliament Core Business. Advocate Pindela holds a Bachelor of Law degree from the University of the West Western Cape, sorry and Master of Law from the University of Pretoria. He served as lecturer and deputy dean of the School of Law at the University of North, researcher in the Constitution Court, commissioner at CCMA, senior legal advisor to the Impumalanga professional legislature, interim clerk of the Pan-African Parliament, Honourable members, it is my pleasure to invite Advocate Pindela to brief us. Over to you, Advocate Pindela.
1: Thank you very much, House uh, Chairperson, and uh, thank you, uh, Chairperson, Deputy Chairperson, and as Chairperson Nyambi, the Chief, um, Honourable Members, the President of SALGA, uh, Special Delegates as well as uh, members of the provincial legislatures present in the workshop my colleagues house checkers and i have listened carefully to the deliberations in the workshop uh, from yesterday until today and uh, it appears to me that there's consensus on the oversight role of the national council of provinces as well as the fact that the national council of provinces is constitutionally bound to hold the executive accountable for this uh, the presenters refer to a myriad of laws that grant the national council of provinces the authority to oversee and hold the executive accountable for the budget appropriated to them by parliament i must say house chairperson that i was struck Though not surprised by the words of the Deputy Minister of Finance yesterday, when he said that uh, it is the executive, while it is the executive that allocates the budget, it is Parliament that appropriates the money. This brought home the point that the legislature is the final word in so far as the allocation of the budget is concerned. The second statement that the Deputy Minister made. But that the legislature may call upon them, that is the executive, to come and account at its convenience. And that fact foreshadows the fact that the Constitution clothes the legislature with authority to oversee and hold the executive accountable and therefore to have the final say insofar as the budget is concerned. Honorable High has persistently and consistently made a point that. Parliament is not properly resourced in so far as the budget is concerned. That is also a point which was made by Honourable Karim. Now that begs the given what I have said, that begs the question whether the legislature should continue to complain about the money that it appropriates to itself. Perhaps it's not the money, it's not how the money is appropriated as it is the procedure followed. By treasury in allocating the money. Perhaps allocation and appropriation are often used interchangeably, and perhaps allocation is sometimes perceived to be a foregone conclusion, the purposes of appropriation. We do have the financial management of parliament, financial management of parliament and provincial legislature sect. I still have to hear uh, any presenter mentioning that particular act. I thought that the the PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Office, will deal with that particular act and insofar as how the budget of parliament is dealt with. This act clearly outlines the procedure to be followed in dealing with both or the original budget as well as the revised budget of parliament. And according to it, the original as well as the revised appropriation to parliament must be approved by parliament itself. A lot has been said about uh, the money bills, amendment procedures, and related matters act, which provides for a procedure to amend money bills before parliament. This act gives effect to section 7. Z- section 77 of the constitution and it provides as uh, professor Mella has said for the sequencing of the budget process commencing with the introduction and adoption of the fiscal framework followed by the adoption of the division of revenue bill and lastly by the appropriation bill so that's the sequence that uh, the money bills amendment procedures and related matters act provides for the act prescribes different procedures for these three instruments while the fiscal framework is dealt with simultaneously by the two houses the division of revenue bill and the appropriation bill are dealt with in terms of section 70, 76 and 75 respectively of the constitution and it appears to me that sometimes uh, the money the the division of revenue bill is also mistaken for a money bill whereas it is dealt with in terms of section 76 of the constitution as a bill affecting provinces. The appropriation bill is dealt with in terms of section 75 of the constitution as a bill not affecting provinces. The fiscal framework is dealt with in the National Council of Provinces is voted for in terms of the provincial votes. And therefore, because it is not a bill that is a procedure that is followed in terms of section 65 of the constitution the question that arises is whether there is a difference between the fiscal framework the division of revenue bill and the appropriation bill and whether these can be introduced independently and i'll provide the reason for that question unlike the latter two unlike the division of revenue bill and the appropriation bill the fiscal framework as i've indicated is not a bill Because of the different procedures that are prescribed to deal with these three instruments, the canon of interpretation suggests that the three, although intertwined, may be introduced independently. If the fiscal framework is dealt with jointly, the impression that is created is that it may be introduced, it is possible to introduce it in a sitting of parliament to the exclusion of the Division of Revenue Bill and the Appropriation Bill. If I be correct in this interpretation, then there's no reason why the fiscal framework may not be introduced in a joint sitting instead of, in most instances, if not all instances, in fact, in all instances, instead of reducing the permanent delegates and the special delegates to observers. Because uh, when the budget in general is uh, said to be produced, members of the National Council of Provinces are merely reduced uh, to observers. The first impediment to this process, of course, is that Section 1, Section of the Money Bills Amendment Procedures and Related Matters Act, requires the minister to table the appropriation bill in the National Assembly at the same time as the national budget. In what appears to be another impediment, Section 5 of the Money Bills Amendment Procedures and Related Matters Act compels only the committees of the National Assembly to annually assess the performance of national departments and to submit budgetary review and recommendations reports. I know that uh, Honorable Karim has made a point insofar as this uh, uh, matter is concerned that the National Council of Provinces may not necessarily have uh, sufficient resources to deal with uh, the annual performance plans of all, the, the departments and therefore produce what is referred to as the budgetary review and recommendations reports i contend that this section however does not preclude the national council of provinces from considering or from submitting the budgetary review and recommendations report Since the National Council of Provinces is constitutionally obliged to oversee and hold the executive accountable, it does not have to derive this power from the Money Bills Amendment Procedures and Related Matters Act. It derives this power from the Constitution itself. While the Money Bills Amendment Procedures and Related Matters Act authorizes Parliament to amend money bills, the difficulty is that the legislation is that the national council of provinces may only propose amendments to such bills it has no authority on its own to amend a money bill this is so because all money bills must be dealt with in accordance with the procedural client in section 75 of the constitution although the 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 money bills uh, amendment procedures and related Act gives an impression that it deals with the amendment of for instance uh, the the division of revenue bill a closer look at it uh, reveals that it only deals with the amendment of the appropriation bill because it is dealt with in terms of section 75 of the constitution because the appropriation bill is dealt with in terms of section 75 of the constitution there is no deadlock breaking mechanism where the two houses do not agree on the proposed amendments the national assembly may still proceed to pass the appropriation bill without amendments even if it is returned to it with proposed amendments from the national council of provinces the only limitation being that the appropriation bill must be consistent with the fiscal framework and the division of revenue bill however it is at this point that they view that it is not only at the stage of making the law but also at its implementation that the National Council of Provinces must exercise oversight It's relevant. The fact that the National Council of Provinces may be perceived not to have an effective power to amend the appropriation bill does not prohibit it from overseeing the spending by government departments and holding the executive accountable. That power, as I've indicated, is derived from the fact that such legislation may not be passed without the participation of the national council of provinces and therefore it derives that power to oversee from that particular point the appropriation bill is preceded by the division of revenue bill which provides for the equitable division of revenue raised nationally among the three spheres of government it is classified as a bill affecting provinces and it is dealt with in terms of section 76 of the constitution For it to be passed, the provincial mandates are required. Provincial legislatures are at liberty to propose amendments to the Division of Revenue Bill. Depending on the mandates given to the provincial uh, delegates, the National Council of Provinces may amend the Division of Revenue Bill. I think I must emphasize that insofar as uh, the appropriation bill is concerned, as I've indicated, is dealt with in terms of Section 75. And the National Council of Provinces may only propose amendments. And that is why, when the bill, if the bill is returned to the National Assembly, it has an addendum to it, uh, if uh, the National Council of Provinces has proposed amendments. But insofar as the a bill affecting provinces uh, is concerned, and that is the Division of Revenue Bill, if the National Council of Provinces amends that bill, it returns to the National Assembly an amended bill. It does not return the bill together with the proposed amendments but it returns to the national assembly and amended bill as i've indicated depending on the money given to the provincial delegates the national council of provinces made the division of revenue bill this power as i've indicated does not derive from the Money bills amendment procedures and related matters act it emanates from the constitution and from the fact that this bill is classified as a bill affecting provinces. If the National Assembly does not agree with the bill as amended by the National Council of Provinces, the constitution provides for the deadlock breaking mechanism in the form of the mediation committee to be formed by the equal number of of members from each house. The purpose is to attempt to break the deadlock between the two houses and the mediation therefore makes it possible for the mediation committee to agree on a bill as amended by the National Council of Provinces. Should the Division of Revenue Bill be amended, Section 9, subsection 4 of the Money Bills Amendment Procedures and Related Matters Act requires any amendments thereto to be consistent with the fiscal framework and Section 214 of the Constitution. Section 10, subsection 4 of the Act in turn requires that any amendment to the appropriation bill be consistent with the fiscal framework and the Division of Revenue Bill this is in accordance with the by the act section 214 of the constitution gives the national council of provinces enormous powers in the passing of the division of revenue bill and considering the division of revenue 214 subsection 2 requires the following to be taken into consideration and i'm going to mention that uh, those factors Uh, the
2: debt and other
1: national obligations, the needs and interest of the national government determined by objective criteria, the need to ensure that the provinces and municipalities are able to provide basic services and perform the functions allocated to them, the fiscal capacity efficiency of the provinces and municipalities, developmental and other needs of the provinces, local government and municipalities, economic disparities within and among the provinces, obligations of the provinces and and municipalities in terms of national, the desirability of stable and predictable allocations of revenue shares, and the need for flexibility in responding to emergencies or other temporary needs and other factors based on similar objective criteria. These are the factors that uh, Honorable Karim uh, referred to uh, in his presentation that he, he indicated that they require a lot of resources in order to arrive at the conclusion whether the division of revenue bill, for instance, must be amended or not. We have to take all this into consideration. A closer look at the factors considered reveals that in considering the division of revenue bill, the National Council of Provinces must ensure that the interests of national, provincial, and local spheres of government are taken into consideration. But a closer look <coughs> reveals that the majority of these factors are focused on the provincial and local spheres of government. The question to be answered is whether the National Council of Provinces does take all this into consideration. My view is that this requires an interplay between the three spheres of government with furtherance of the principles of cooperative government. It presupposes that the three spheres are sufficiently resourced and empowered to provide the information required to factor the decision whether to amend the division of revenue bill or not the mandates of the provinces must objectively support their proposed amendment One of particular importance is that the provincial delegates must be willing to negotiate with each other in order to support the proposed amendments this should happen during the committee for instance the committee negotiating stage As indicated, it appears to me that there is consensus that there is no further there is no need for further legislation to enable select committees to perform their constitutional obligations. The question is whether the rules of the National Council of Provinces are sufficient enough to provide for its effective participation in the budget as well as in the budget and fiscal oversight and accountability processes. It may be argued that there's no need to amend the rules to give the committees of the National Council of Provinces more powers than they currently possess. For the purposes of overseeing and holding the executive accountable, the National Council of Provinces, in terms of its rules, has established a select committee. These committees are clustered in accordance with the portfolios of government. Each has the responsibility to oversee the exercise of executive authority within its area of operation and to report to the House on those matters. In addition to that, the committees may conduct oversight out of their own accord, and the select committees are required to report to the House on matters referred to them. To enable them to perform their functions, the rules arrogate okay to the select committees the powers to summon any person to appear before it, to give evidence on oath or produce documents, conduct public hearings, receive petitions or submissions, or conduct the public hearings. Most most importantly, the select committees have the power to determine their own procedures. Thus, they may determine their own programs and other logistics subject to the directions of the program committee. Section 4 of the Money Bill's Amendment Procedures and Related Matters Act makes provision for the powers and functions of the Finance and Appropriation Committees. It, however, does not make provision for powers and functions of other oversight. Committees. It appears that this is only for the purposes of processing the annual fiscal framework, the division of revenue and appropriation bill. And this may give an impression that it is only the finance and appropriation committees that have a role to play insofar as the budget process is concerned. In practice, it is all the select committees that do have a role to play insofar as the budget process insofar as the oversight and accountability are concerned neither the rules nor the money bills amendment procedures and related matters act specifically provide for the tabling and consideration of strategic plans annual performance plans and budget allocations of departments in the national council of provinces as indicated earlier the money bills amendment procedures and related matters act Provide for tabling in the national assembly it further makes provision for the tabling of budgetary and uh, review uh, budget review and recommendations report in the national assembly but even if the rules or the act do not explicitly provide for that section 92 subsection 2 of the constitution makes the members of cabinet accountable collectively and individually to parliament for the exercise of their powers and the performance of their functions section 92 subsection 3 compels members of cabinet to provide parliament with full and regular reports concerning matters under their control. It may therefore be necessary to amend the rules so as to explicitly make provision for the tabling of strategic plans, annual performance plans, and budget allocations to all the departments. Given the size of the National Council of Provinces, it may not always be possible, of course, to consider this for all the departments and their entities. There also seems to be an assumption that the National Council of Provinces has committees like the Standing Committee on Public Accounts and Standing Committee on the Auditor General. I have listened to the presentation today by the DG in Treasury as well as uh, the the Auditor General. Uh, The fact of the matter is that the National Council of Provinces does not have these committees. While it may not it may not be necessary to establish these committees. It is, however, necessary to establish a strong relationship between the Office of the Auditor General as well as the National Treasury. This will go a long way in ensuring that the reports that are tabled in the provinces and this relationship needs to be formalized. I wish to make the following recommendations, having said what I have said that the rules be amended as to provide for the tabling of strategic plans, annual performance plans, and the budget allocations to the department, the consideration of the above by the select committees, the policy debate by the House, the determination by the chairperson in consultation with other presiding officers, the provincial groups and parties of the vote to be debated in the House. Secondly, that the money bills, uh, amendment procedures and related matters act. Be amended so as to provide for the tabling of the annual national budget in the joint sitting, tabling of the appropriation bill and the division of revenue separately from the annual national budget, the tabling and consideration of strategic plans, annual performance plans, and budget allocations to the departments, and tabling and consideration of the budgetary review and recommendations reports in the National Council of Provinces. And lastly, as I've indicated, to establish a relationship with the Office of the auditor General as well as the uh, Treasury. Thank you very much uh, uh, House Chairperson. and that brings me to the end of my presentation. <laughs>
13: You are muted, uh, should unmute, I'll share. i share, we
1: can't hear you. I'll share, you are muted.
13: How now I how now in Zunix?
16: Vulum open the
4: microphone. Maybe the microphone. Uh, host dealt to the memo. Gwen,
1: host, may you please uh, unmute the house chapter?
8: Advocate, my my apology, we've lost audio from Honorable Nguyenya. So we worked on it, but we've totally lost Deputy audio. Deputy Chair,
13: can, I, can you assist,
0: please? Sorry, is it, uh, according to the program, are we supposed to have engagement with this? With You're
13: supposed I'm to, I, I'm supposed to be there next.
0: So, okay, thank you very much. Thank you then, Advocate Pindela. We will now then uh, request that that the chief whip do the closing remarks. Thank you.
13: Thank you very much, Deputy Chairperson. The Presidium of the National Council of Provinces, led by the the Chair of the NCOP, uh, Emma Masondo, the Deputy Minister of Finance, Dr. Masondo, Honorable members of the NCUP, distinguished uh, special delegates, esteemed members of the panel from various institutions, academic and professional disciplines, uh, distinguished Auditor General of South Africa, Mayor The flow of the discussion from yesterday although mainly focus on the budget and fiscal oversight had two legs. The first leg focused on deepening and forging of shared understanding on the position and role of parliament in the budget and fiscal oversight within the context of the existing legislative framework and practice. And the second leg on the efficacy and effectiveness of the current framework of framework of parliamentary engagement with the budget and fiscal oversight. Deputy Chair, in, in this we have benefited from different perspectives drawn from different experiences. Among the critical, conceptual questions that we have, have dominated our discussions in, the, in this uh, fundamental question of the role of Parliament in the budget allocations as pointed out by some of the presenters, budget is inherently a policy function of the executive that resides within the national treasury. The constitution and other related legislations clearly defies the role of parliament in the budget and fiscal oversight, critical among which are the adoption of the oversight of the budget allocation and expenditure. Questions have been raised about the requisite technical capacity of Parliament to match the capacity of the national treasury and other government departments in terms of financial and economic issues that inform the allocation and prioritization of the budget. Much of the discussions have been focused more on the amendment of the budget in the light of the mandatory legislation. Critical as this issue is for Parliament as the elected Tribune of the People a question has been raised whether Parliament has requested technical capacity to engage meaningfully with the amendment of the budget. Most critically, as we further engage, we should attempt to find one another around the key question, which is the test against which Parliament should make proposals around the amendment of the budget. Chair, I raise this not, this not in a vacuum, but to ensure predictability and stability in the domestic and global financial markets as we are operating within the global context. Perhaps we should also acknowledge that budget is also a political instrument and process in so doing critically examine whether our forms of political engagement with the budget, especially the allocation side of it, has been adequate. Quite a number of speakers reflected on this question. We must be cautious that the budget is not a neutral instrument, but guided by different other political processes and outcomes which are consolidated in the medium-term strategic framework. This workshop has also raised and touched on the critical issue of facilitating public involvement in the budget and fiscal oversight. Surely this process cannot be exclusive domain of those committees, appropriation and finance select committees but should find prominent expression across all committees. This critically so at the level of strategic planning, performance, reporting and monitoring. Different participants have raised a number of important strategic issues that we may have to consider going forward. Critical amongst them, criti- critical amongst these is the need to appreciate the unique mandate of the National Council of Provinces in South Africa's constitutional democracy. The key, question becomes therefore whether we are focused on our core strategic mandate or simply duplicating the national assembly. We have to identify areas of duplication and discard such. There is no doubt that the revelations at the Zondo Commission have once more put at the center of public discourse the efficacy and effectiveness of parliament. In discharging its oversight role, the alleged abuse of public resources, which permeates the successive reports of the Richard General, is a serious indictment on the credibility of Parliament. For the people we represent, the abuse and mismanagement of public funds with impunity and persistence of poor service delivery are key tests of the effectiveness of parliamentary oversight. As part of democratic and institutional renewal, we need a soul-searching analysis of how Parliament can play a more effective role to ensure it holds the departments accountable. One critical issue that has not evaded the focus of this workshop is how our committees forge strategic partnership with other critical oversight bodies like Auditor General, especially as it relates to the budget and fiscal oversight these institutions have massive infrastructure and technical capacity that can be at service of parliamentary committees as it is revealed through chairperson's panel uh, the interaction of auditor general uh, with parliament has revealed quite useful information that lays the basis for focused oversight chair the dg of national treasury raised critical issue in terms of focus of our committees oversight work mentioned section 32 reports it is given that sometimes committees are taken away by imaging issues and pay lesser attention to critical reports which are instruments of oversight it is on the basis it is on the basis of a report that the committee can have a sense whether the department is performing and spending according to plan or not we really need to improve in this area Would All recall why Constitutional Assembly replaced the former Senate and established National Council of Provinces in its current form. Key to the strategic consideration about the NCOP as a second chamber in South African Parliament was to create this institutional mechanism of integrating provincial and local government system into the national policy making. So this defines the unique nature of the NCOP as a second chairman. According to the report of the Independent Panel of Assessment of Parliament of 2006, the NCOP requires serious strategic repositioning and reconfiguration with its core constitutional mandate. I think the deliberation of this workshop sets us in motion in terms of undertaking that introspection. And at the core of this conclusion is the observation of, of that report is the observation that it does not discharge its unique constitutional mandate but there are areas of duplication with the National Assembly. I think this is an issue that we need to revisit. Particularly, the deteriorating state of local government in South Africa cannot be understood in isolation, but as integral to the collapse of intergovernmental relations and cooperative governance. Chair, I will concede that the failure to follow through these kind of workshops has caused more harm than good in the past. What should therefore be the way forward post this workshop and beyond Uh, the good report that will emerge here from allow me to just make few recommendations. Uh, One would be the secretariat to compile and consolidate a comprehensive report of this workshop based on the inputs and observation made in this workshop, identify gaps in the current systems and processes, and instruments, recommend action areas based on the identified gaps, develop a draft standard practice guide and mandatory reporting framework for consideration by proceeding officers, develop of a structured development and training for committees. And and, and I think this is an important point uh, around issues of capacity and continuous training. Uh, Various speakers pointed out on this area. We should track and identify all policy proposals about the reform of local government and advise how to take them forward. The president of Salga Salga and Dr. Mohale prominently raised key questions around these areas that we we really need to improve as the National Council of Provinces. Chairperson and honorable members, our esteemed panelists, leadership of the organized local government, Allow me to express my appreciation of the modest and frank discussion about the challenges facing us in relation to critical area of budget and fiscal oversight. Uh, Members and also our external presenters were frank. There's nothing wrong in being honest about our inadequacies of capacity and need to improve this. The first thing to deal with the problem is by recognizing it. So uh, particularly members Honorable Karim reflected the areas that need strengthening with regard to oversight and capacity to deal with the budget comprehensively. So to conclude, let me thank everyone, especially our panelists and national treasure without whom this workshop would not Succeed. We will consolidate the outcomes of this workshop, and this was marking the beginning of an engagement, particularly in areas that will need further clarity. For the presenters, we will never hesitate to engage them further. I uh, thank you, chairperson. Am I
0: still the chairperson? With all yes, of yes, the- thank you. With all of that said and done, allow me then to thank everyone that was involved by the success of this workshop. It was indeed successful. I hope that the information and the knowledge that, we, that was imparted on us during those two days will uh, actually enable us to make sure that we play a better oversight role and ensure that particularly with regards to the issues of budget, the NCOP use the powers that is in our hands to make sure that we, that the budget respond to our social economic circumstances of our people, but also that the budget respond through us and through our oversight role, through our engagement, that the budget respond properly to what we want to achieve. To those that conceptualize the workshop also, let me comment you. I think without much further ado, Thank you very much to all the members, to the permanent delegates, <coughs> to the <coughs> to the <coughs> to the uh, sorry to the other delegates, to the panelists, particularly to our panelists, to our esteemed panelists, to the chief whip, to the presidium, and to Advocate Pandela and his team. We want to express our sincere appreciation. Go well and rest well. And please don't phone me because you say the works, the workshop was too long. I'm fine now. Thank you very much.
16: Thank you, Thank <laughs>
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. I uh-huh.
1: Well
4: yes advocate?
1: Oh uh, yeah, there's a thunderstorm here.
4: Oh.
0: Ah uh, we've moved everyone, I think. That is not an official. Wow.
2: Hmm.
1: Okay, so we can take five minutes. Yeah. Okay. Any comments? Any comments?
4: I think we had a good session. I think this workshop was a success. Um, I have.